Welcome to Deeper Levels, a podcast about pathology, medicine, and science mostly. My name is Natalie Vinay. I'm your host. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome a special guest, Dr. Matt Quick. Dr. Quick received his MD from the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences in Little Rock, Arkansas. He completed his APCP residency and a surgical pathology fellowship also in Arkansas before spending a year as a fellow in women's and perinatal pathology at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. He is currently an associate professor of pathology and the director of anatomic pathology, gynecologic pathology, and the surgical pathology fellowship at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. So Dr. Quick is here today as a part of my series on folks who do GYN pathology, talking to them about how they became interested in the field and what they're up to now. So Dr. Quick, Matt, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. And you do go by Matt, right? You have many possibilities of first names and abbreviations. So I, I do. It's know. very odd. and it, mm-hmm. It's the nickname of my middle name, but mm-hmm. for some reason it's stuck. So here okay. we are. Has anyone ever called you Charles? So the only time I was called Charles was uh, mm-hmm. during my second fellowship in Boston. They're very formal, as <laughs> you know. And um, they, they called me Charles, except my co-fellow called me Chaz the entire time. So in the process huh. of being formal, she was also like wickedly informal. That's um, really funny. I, yeah, see at, at Hopkins, they made everyone call us doctor, whatever. No <laughs> one was allowed to call you by your first name because I think they didn't want it to be, you know, like the staff called you one thing and your coworkers called you something else. Um, but it was so hard for me to keep track of. I usually called people by their three initial mnemonic. I don't know if that's how you all sign out where you were, but we initialed everything with our three. And so still my co-fellows, I still call their three, (laughs) three initial mnemonic, which is, I think a whole different kind of pathology. (laughs) Whatever. I do like that though. Chess. Yeah. I was Chess for a good solid year. It sounds like something from a 1970s, like buddy cop show or something. So um, I'm here for it. Um, Oh yeah. We were definitely buddy cops that year. (laughs) I know the feeling. Yeah. It's a really special kind of bond um, that you cannot recreate with anyone else. The experience of being a co-fellow. Absolutely. Um, Yes. So can you tell me more about yourself aside from the info I've provided above how you came to work where you do and um, how you chose medicine? Did you come from a scientific family? Yeah, that's, um, so no, absolutely Mm -hmm. not, which is interesting. Um, I'm kind of the black sheep of my family, uh, Mm -hmm. when it comes to that. I mean, my parents are proud of me and all, uh, but. (laughs) Black sheep does sort of have negative connotations. Right. I'm I'm sure they don't harbor toward you. Well, so, you know, my family was all into, uh, finance. Uh, they're all mortgage bankers. Um, they talked about, money and markets and things like that growing up at dinner. And, um, you know, my, my brother's in that area and, and I thought about it and I even kind of worked in a, in a bank for a while and I did not find it interesting at all. I just, I liked science. Um, and so, uh, when I went to college, I thought, you know, um, I'm going to take the road less traveled and, and do a science major. So I was a microbiology major, hmm. uh, which was different for my family. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, there's not much you can do with the micro major. Um, I kind of <laughs> realized. Work in a clinical lab, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, yeah. I could have, I could have worked in a lab. I could have been a food science person. Um, I guess I could have been a, a college professor. Um, but medicine always did kind of interest me. My mother, my mother tells me that that I was going to be a doctor from like way on because I spent time, a lot of time in the hospital. Apparently, um, and Being sometimes sick or just well, hanging out. 
So I think it was a mixture of both. She said there was one time that I, that I was complaining. I I kind of remember this, but she said I was throwing a big fit. It was the middle of the night. She took me to the emergency room. And as soon as we got there, I started playing with all the stuff on the wall and I was better. Um, which I don't think like an otoscope for a kid, for a kid, sick kid. Yeah, exactly. So uh, she says that, that she could detect my inner leanings very early on, but, um, you know, I, I, I don't think it really came in, came into focus for me until I was in college and realized that I had probably better be a physician or something like that. Uh, otherwise I was just going to go back and get another major. Mm Mm-hmm. So, okay. um, yeah, that, uh, that's how so I ended medicine, up medicine. Yeah. It was microbiology. And then you looking around and hearing some crickets and thinking, yeah, let's try this medicine thing. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. So you, you get into medicine. How did you choose pathology once you were oh in Oh my gosh. Well, that's a process. So, okay. I get into <laughs> medicine thinking that I'm going to be an infectious disease doctor because microbiology major, right? Sure. So I get into medicine I'm all about micro. I'm all about disease state, um, learning about all this stuff in the first two years of medical school. So I get through my preclinical years and, and I'm dead set, laser focus. I got this. So I'm going to, you know, go into third year. I'm going to do some internal medicine. I'm going to do some, uh, some selectives in uh, infectious disease. And um, the first rotation I had in my third year was uh, internal medicine. And I'm thinking, great, this is it. This is my show. Uh, so I, I get there and then I realized that I absolutely hated taking histories and physicals. <laughs> okay. And the, I, the stumbling block. Yes. Yeah. And, and it was, uh, you know, it wasn't because of the patients or, or the, it, it was because we knew already, I always knew they were like, well, who's this guy's back for congestive heart failure again, go in and, and take a history and physical. And I would prep it. I'd look at the chart and I'd see what they had and I'd go in there and I would do the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, that's, not exactly what I was thinking I'm going to do, but then I thought, okay, you know what? This is fine. It's just because I'm not doing infectious disease, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and when I get to do infectious disease, it's, it's going to be all better, and I'm going to have a great time, uh, you know, trying to figure out the mystery of what's going on with these patients. Well, come to find out, when I finally got to my infectious disease rotation, it was more of the same, and I never was figuring out what was wrong with the patient. I was always waiting on this lab to send us the results right and you you get the you get the ask so you get the results what what bacteria what virus whatever uh what antibiotics can you use and i I thought well they're demystifying that for me now too Mm -hmm. and um someone looked at me and said well you know maybe um you care more about the investigative process and the science behind it than you do about treating the patient and i thought about it for a minute and i said yeah i think you're right and uh, they said, well, you need to go down to the pathology lab. That's where they do that stuff. And so <laughs> at least they knew that much. Some clinicians were a complete black box. That's great. Yeah. 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 And they sent me pathology. down there. And mm-hmm. and then, you know, I went down to the micro lab first, obviously. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought that was OK. It was a lot of what I did in college. Right. You were plating things and looking for growth patterns. And I was like, well, mm-hmm. that's cute. And then someone said, oh, you need to go hang out in surgical pathology for a while. It's going to be slow here today. So I went over to surgical pathology and then that was it. Um, instantly fell in love with what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I had a, yeah, I had a very similar experience. I, uh, I kind of knew when I was on surgery and I was begging them so that I could break scrub to go hang out. In the oh, yeah. <laughs> they were yeah. like, 
you know, I don't know. Maybe you could just do that every time. And I thought, yeah, that, that'd be great. I would kind of prefer that. Absolutely. Um, yeah, that's great. So you, you, you choose pathology and then you are doing your residency also in Arkansas uh, and you did a fellowship in surge path with a, with a focus on GI and how did you end up choosing GYN pathology as well? Oh what was your story there? Well, see, and this is, this, this is, again, this is my, the second time I failed at, at knowing myself. And, um, <laughs> and so, this is going to be, that's going to be the uh, subtitle of your memoir. Go ahead. <laughs> no, <laughs> failing at knowing myself. It's true. I did. I, I discovered yeah. myself by failing to know myself. I know. Right. <laughs> And, and and it's it, all of it is happenstance. I, I've I've stopped planning my life like altogether. I and and this is why. Um, mm-hmm. You know, first there was the infectious disease thing, mm-hmm. and, and then I get into pathology, and I'm doing my first year, year and a half of pathology, and I'm having a great time, and I'm really enjoying it. But I'm really enjoying one thing, and that's hematopathology. Right, <laughs> and I know you're like, okay, you totally went a different direction with that. No, and I, I, I can cop to the fact that that was my first rotation too. And I was like, I could probably do this. Yeah. So I'm, I'm with you. I'm with All you. that ancillary I'm testing. Bone. Oh, it's just, it's delicious. Mm-hmm. I enjoy doing bone marrow differentials. I enjoy know, right? Full, wholeheartedly. Yeah. And now really? I think, what? Yeah. So, no, well, not the counting part. Did you? Oh yeah. The counting part. No, like I the sat there with, with the thing, you know, those little old machines oh, with your yeah. fingers and they had pictures on them. It. Yeah. Uh-huh. I loved doing that. <laughs> loved it. Yeah, I'm still very close friends with the medical student who was rotating with me, and we would just sit and do differentials for hours every day together. Yeah, so he was so really, really cool. And you know, I thought, okay, I got this. What I'm going to do mm-hmm. is I'm going to do a heme path fellowship, mm-hmm. and I'm going to uh, go into private practice. <laughs> Obviously, that didn't happen. This, and, is what, this is what not what happened. Yeah, and then I'm going to also I'm going to live on a boat. I'm going. Uh, these are these are three things that I knew. <laughs> All three of which couldn't be more grossly incorrect. Um, Did you have experience with someone who lived on a boat? Do I get to know why you thought that? Well, I mean, I did. I did. And and I grew up around boats and I love okay. boats. And it's still something I do to this day. And uh-huh. uh, But, you know, I thought, gee, wouldn't it be nice to be able to just drive your house somewhere else for the weekend? Um, right. And, and I, I just think boats are cool. Something okay. about them. And, and, and there's just this it's kind of beauty to them. And, and I don't, you know, they're small, but I kind of like that. It's the simplicity. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, th- that was never going to happen. My wife was like, no, yeah, you fool. <laughs> um, yeah, it probably works better if you're single, I would I, imagine. Exactly. Not have anybody else to worry about on a boat. Yeah, well, and now that I have three kids, like I Holy moly. That fully, be- yeah, I fully see the the, the error in my ways. But that being said, I keep telling her we're going to retire onto a boat and she uh-huh. just kind of laughs and walks out uh-huh. of the room. Uh-huh. That's um, smart. That's a good way to be uh, with your spouse. I can attest to that. Yeah. I would say that you could live on a boat with your children if you were allowed to put your children into the lifeboats and just sort of cast them off for a couple hours at a time. Just drag yeah. it around behind the boat. Yes. <laughs> just get, get a break. <laughs> Sometimes I kind of want to do that now. It's probably not legal though. I'll yeah. have to edit that part out. <laughs> I think it is if they have life jackets. It's okay. 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 I'm sorry. So boat, heme path, private practice. How yeah. did you end up? Yeah. Okay. So boat, heme path, private practice. And then I go as far as to uh, interview for a heme path fellowship. Uh-huh. And um, I don't get it. And here's the real, this was the real kick in the pants is <laughs> I interviewed for a heme path fellowship at my own institution and didn't get it, which, you know, I, 
I mean, I was chief resident. I did all, I, I was doing everything right. I thought I got this and, uh-huh. um, and then I didn't get it. They picked someone else. And okay. um, so I was kind of devastated, but that's where everything changed. And I got lucky. I had really, really good mentors. And I think that that's kind of important for what we do and mm-hmm. for, for discerning what we need to do with our lives to make ourselves happy because I was ignoring things and this is where I've learned a lot about myself, but I was ignoring things from a long time. You know, I liked team path, but I liked guide path more, but mm. I just thought that I couldn't have a job in it. And so in me and my devastation, uh, go into, uh, one of my faculty's offices and just sit there and I'm like, oh, I didn't get the fellowship. And he looked at me and he was like, good. And are you, uh, are you still friends with this person? I love this person to death. Are they still around? Yeah, that's yeah. great. I like this yeah. person's advice. Yeah, okay, great. And so, you know, he looks at me and he goes, Well, you like Gynepath. We've done some Gynepath stuff together. Why don't you do Gynepath? And I was like, No, because everywhere that has one of those fellowships wouldn't even take a second look at me. And he says, Well, how are you going to know if you don't even try? Because I'm thinking I just got rejected from a Hempath fellowship from my own institution. There is no way that I'm going to, you know, get into Hopkins or Yale or Stanford or Harvard or any of these other places and do a Gynepath fellowship. So I'm just like, you're crazy. Uh, this is ridiculous. But, you know, so we, I write a letter, I, you know, get my CV dusted off, get everything ready and, and then, um, interviewed around and, and got lucky. Um, and, um, so if it wasn't for him saying, look, this is what you like to do. This is what you need to do. Um, I might not have taken it seriously enough to try it, but, you know, because I, one faculty member had faith in me and, and said, you need to do this, um, um, that everything kind of fell into place after that. That That's a great story. I, I've interviewed quite a few people for this show now, and uh, I find there are multiple different kinds of people. You know, some people say, I always knew I wanted to do GYN path or I wanted to do pathology. It's not an uncommon story for folks who land in pathology to say, I was, I knew I was going to do X. And mm-hmm. then I got to medical school and I thought I have cannot do X. And that's what happened to me. So how did you sort of shift your mind away from uh, going into private practice, which I, I would argue you can find jobs in private practice with GYN path, although it's a different probably case makeup than what yeah. you do now. How did you shift your focus from, from private to academic again? Well, and, you know, and that, that took some time because I, I think going into it, um, I've always had a, a confidence problem. And so going into it. Seriously? Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Still to this day. I mean. I would never guess that. Well, I'm, uh, I mean, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, Bravado. I guess you have that down to a to an art. Okay. It's, <laughs> it, so what, what I thought was, you know, looking at the, looking at the entirety of everything and the reason I, I was shying away from academics and I, I, you know, to this day, I urge people not to do it. I didn't think I had the ability to, um, do, you know, research to write papers. I knew I could teach. I knew I liked teaching and interacting with people and trying to make knowledge digestible and fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't think that I could do the other stuff that you need to be able to do to be an academic pathologist. And so that's why I was defaulting to private practice. Um, mm-hmm. so in making that switch, you know, really it was, um, it was kind of brute force when I went up to, to Brigham and women's and that was something that I freely told him. I said, look, I want to learn 
how to do research. I want to learn how to conceptualize project projects. I want to learn how to write. Um, and, and they were very good about showing me how they approached it. You know, they didn't sit me down and say, okay, this is how you, you know, make a project up, but they just led by example. Um, and so when I was there, I tried so hard to spend time with different faculty members. Um, you know, Dr. Nucci, Dr. Mutter, Dr. Crum, Dr. Quaidy, basically all of them. And I tried to see their individual approaches to everything. Uh, and then I, basically I parroted that, mm-hmm. uh, but it, it works because the way that I learned was through doing uh, with them. And I think that that's a great group of people to, to learn that art form from. And, um, you know, so after seeing that and after gaining a little bit of confidence, see, I actually came out of that fellowship with an offer for private Mm-hmm. And, and an offer to to actually come back to to Little Rock and, and do academic medicine. And so I kind of had like a safety net. I thought, well, if I go up there and I can't do academics in my mind, I'll go into this private job and just do general surgical pathology. And, you know, that'll be it. Uh, but I thought, you know what, let's give it a shot. And um, that's how I started in academics. And then from there, you know, I, I learned, okay, I can do this. Um, it wasn't as intimidating as it, uh, initially seemed. Uh, and so, you know, here we are, uh, I guess 10 years later, 11 years later, and, 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 uh, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with it now. I'm still not that good at it. Uh, but, but I'm much more comfortable with the process and how things work and, and, and what you need to do to be a good academic doctor. So when you say you give people, you said you give people advice and then you said something else. When you're, do you give people advice not to be intimidated about going into academic medicine? Is that what you meant by that? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, one of my jobs here um, is um, I'm what we have these academic houses for medical students. Houses? Houses. Like like Gryffindor? Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Exactly like that. And so okay. we, we divide the students up and they're actually sorted. There are, so we call it a sorting ceremony. <laughs> Is it based on an algorithm or what? Like it, don't, they, they the draw their names out of a hat. Um, oh, okay. Very much like a sorting hat. Um, okay. And so they draw their names out of a hat. Well, except the sorting hat could see your soul or something, right? And this is just random, I assume. I'm not going to lie. I think there's some people that believe that the hat has powers. <laughs> okay. Uh, but yeah, so their names are sorted out. And so we have these medical students and I'm one of the house advisors. Um, so I, I'm like, an, I'm like Snape. Um, oh, really? Yeah. I wouldn't put you there, but yeah. Oh yeah. You seem to, you seem to wash your hair from the times I've seen you. On well, camera. I mean, it depends on, you know, what time. Plus or minus. It is. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It, <laughs> but it is kind of long like that. And so, yeah. Um, so, so yeah, so I'm, I'm their advisor and I have, I meet with these medical students. I have, I have 30 medical students that I advise and I meet with them twice a year for about an hour, hour and a half. Each uh, person individually? Yes. Mm. And uh, actually it's one of my favorite parts of my job. Not all of them are going into pathology. In fact, most of them don't, uh, yeah. but it allows me to tell them all about the screw ups I've made in my life and to help mm-hmm. them avoid those with theirs. And, and then also to, to address their problems and to help them get into the fields that they're meant to be in. And that's kind mm-hmm. of my job there. But then I also get to uh, advise a lot of residents and, and uh, you know, they're all looking at that private versus academic medicine. And that's where that comes in. And I keep telling people, you don't have to be scared of academic medicine. You don't have to be scared of writing papers. 
you have colleagues, you have friends, you have a team, um, you know, all of these things are totally possible because if I can do it, then really anyone can do it. Um, mm-hmm. And it really is kind of building that support system around you. Um, nobody kind of goes at academic medicine by themselves. And and I thought that that's what it would entail when I got into it. But then I realized it's not that way. And so that's what made it actually work for me. Yeah, I do find it interesting that you had an inflection point, right, where you didn't get that fellowship. And then you had this person who said, well, you have this thing that actually calls to you and interests you. Why don't you go do that? And I, well, and I, yeah. uh, you know, I always ask people, was there a certain person? And I think you could probably point to that person as one of the people. And then also all the folks at Brigham and Women's who, like you said, that, you know, hard to find a better cohort of folks to learn from. So yeah. you had someone who sort of scooched you in the right direction and kind of shoved you out of the nest to go learn someplace else. And then um, I agree. I did the same thing. Uh, you and I are close to the same age. I started my fellowship in 2012. I think you started yours in 2010, 2010 right? Yeah, 2010. 2010. And uh, actually, uh, deep cut, but uh, you interviewed me when I came to interview for the fellowship at Brigham and Women's. But, um, and you say you remember nice things about me, and all I remember is being horribly nervous and cold. Um, but uh, it's it's an interesting concept to think of, you know, looking to a group of people and knowing how they would handle things. And still, I try to tell my trainees um, – you know, because they sign out with five or six different GYN pathology attendings at our hospital. And I'm sure we handle things a bit differently. And I tell them that's the whole point, you know, so when you're in practice and you're sitting at the scope by yourself, um, you can know, well, maybe Dr. Panea would have said X and Dr. You know, Y would have said Z. And I can still hear my mentor's voices in my head. And I tell them that it kind of freaks them out, but I mean it in a charming way. Like I know that she would say this and I know that he would say that. And based on what I think I'm going to say this. And right. sometimes it's sort of an amalgamation of everything, but it's so helpful to have those people. And I think mentorship is maybe not as important in other fields of study, but I think in medicine, it's absolutely essential. And and without doing things like what you're doing, being the leader of Slytherin, apparently, um, <laughs> like medical students can't possibly figure all this stuff out by themselves. So they need people like you. That's right. That's and I'm right. sure that's, a fun meeting to have with you. Um, that's a great story. So uh, now that you're in academic medicine and it's not like you're a slouch, you're the director of AP, et cetera, et cetera. What does your work day look like? Are you mostly doing GYN? I know you at some point sort of specialized in some GI. So do you all do subspecialty sign out? How does that work? Yeah. So, so the, the, the system here at the university of Arkansas is, is, is subspecialized. Um, I used to, and you're correct. I used to sign out GI and I used to sign out GYN, um, probably for the first three to four years of my career, I was doing both. Mm-hmm. Um, I was doing one better than the other. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, you it's know, inevitable. It's, it's yeah, always like that. yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, I think at a certain point there, there's another inflection point there. It's right. It, you, you don't want to give up a part that you love. And I did love, I do love GI pathology and I still follow it. I don't follow it as intently as I follow what's happening in gynecologic pathology. Um, mm-hmm. But at a certain point I had to ask myself, if I really want to be a gynecologic pathologist and try to, you know, do that for a living seriously, then I'm going to have to let this go. Mm-hmm. And uh, so my, you know, my AP director at the time was, was Laura Lamps. And she was also the person that trained me in GI, which was a little, 
difficult to go into her office and be like, Hey, so if I don't sign out GI anymore, can I still talk to you? Yeah. Are you still going to be my friend? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> she was like, absolutely. I'm just not going to talk to you for a week or two. But, yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, <laughs> let her get it out of her system. I'm yeah. She was, she was very nice about the whole thing. And yeah. she was like, you know, you've, you know, you've got to, you've got to do what you've got to do and you, you know, mm-hmm. to, to be better, it's like, you can't split your attention that way. Um, right. With the way that everything kind of explodes now, with the amount of knowledge that just yeah. comes out, it's it's impossible. And, and you know, it, and in an academic setting, I didn't. No one, no one, not no one, zero mm-hmm. people need me teaching them something like salivary gland pathology. Right. And so <laughs> if we were signing out ENT stuff, and I'm sitting yeah. there trying to teach a resident, you know, like, yeah. oh, this is a a cynic cell carcinoma that no, that just, there is no universe where that's appropriate. And uh, the same can be said for several other disciplines within surgical pathology. It's mm-hmm. uh, so, so yeah. Dare going, I say heme path? I'm just kidding. Sorry no, to open that old no, That's absolutely true. I mean, <laughs> it may be, maybe not like 10 years ago, I could have held my own, but now I'm like, what? Uh, uh-huh. and, <laughs> I it's, huh? it's it's somewhat freeing, I think, you know, yeah. not having to keep up with those fields and to focus mm-hmm. on something you're really passionate about. And, and I mm-hmm. really love that about my job. And so mm-hmm. I'm glad that we're, you know, subspecialized. And so, you know, typically for me, uh, yeah, I do have a lot of admin responsibility. Um, so I'm that guy everybody gets to love to hate. Um you know, a typical day I'll come in a little bit before seven and I have what I, I call it. I just, it's me time. And my me time is my academic time. And, and it's not really, I, I do have two hours set aside in the mornings where all I do is I work on an ap- academic pursuit, whether that's, you know, writing a book or a paper or reviewing papers or just reading papers. Sometimes I don't want to, you know, I, I just want to read, um, or work on a lecture or something like that. So, you know, I always set aside that time for myself in the mornings. That's when I'm at my most productive. Uh, then mm-hmm. sign out time comes. Mm-hmm. Sign out time is most of the morning kind of trickles into early afternoon when I'm kind of finishing up my lovely paperwork, which I love so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after that, it's usually kind of admin meetings and putting out the fires that have developed during the day. Uh, you know, that's the one thing that that I've learned with administrative stuff is that you know, director of AP was really intimidating when, when I was first approached about it. Mm-hmm. It's actually something I've come to love doing because, you know, there's an obnoxious part and that is any normal day can be completely turned upside down by an issue. But then there's the part where you get to figure out and solve to the problem and then you get to help people and make them feel better about their job and I really like that part of it. So it makes me put up with the minor annoyances. If I can fix things overall and make people happier at work, uh, I feel like that's kind of a benefit. So, yeah, uh, that sounds a little, little bit like parenting as well. It's so, a lot uh, like parenting. I think it's, uh, and I'm not to say that folks who do it, who don't have children, but I just think there's some overlap on the Venn diagram between sort of problem solving and, and keeping your, your, cool in a crisis and well, yeah, yeah. A and, resolution of a problem with trying to make everyone come out a better and just flexibility I mean like mm-hmm. I, I, you know I, I went through all of my failures which we have discussed ad nauseum uh, you know what the one thing I've learned is to to not hold myself to my plans too much and to not be too serious about what I think I want to do and mm-hmm. so that flexibility 
really has helped a lot with uh, with with raising children because mm-hmm. uh, they you know they don't care about your plans. <laughs> oh no, oh no, especially during a pandemic. No. They're just like no, no. The, yeah, I just think I'm just thinking to myself that like houseboat heme path private practice. It was almost like you were doing a Mad Libs. And then like, <laughs> every single, every single blank, you just went back and we're like, yeah, I'm just going to nope, erase that. Nope, we're going to try that again. Yep. And that's part of the life journey. That's part of uh, success is being able to figure out what works for you. Um, so now we'll shift to talk about research, which is interesting. You said you always figured that it wasn't going to be for you. It's obviously not true. Your CV is one of those that uh, you should print in small font and on both sides of the paper. So it's to be environmentally friendly, but the, um, you, it seems like you said you were doing projects with your uh, mentors and folks in Arkansas. And then when you got to, to Boston, it's easy to see when you started doing projects with those folks. And what people might know you for was that you did some work on fallopian tubes, which obviously was very much going on in Boston. At, at yeah. And, and um, you've also since then, it seems like done work on endometrium and, and you've done a lot of speaking about that. I saw you give a live slide lecture, uh, very well done. So can you tell me about how you became interested in those areas? I guess we can start with your fellowship, what that was like. Yeah. Um, so the, the endometrial stuff that came around because, um, I did not feel like I knew, uh, endometrial pathology that well. Hmm. And, uh, that, and, and so I actually went back to my residency and, 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 so this this one mentor that the one that told me that it was good that I didn't get a heme path fellowship that was Jesse McKinney, and mm. so he he basically was like, okay, well if you want to get good at something, do a project in it, and I said, okay, let's do a project, and so we did a huge project where we looked at just endometrial cancers and lymph node dissections, probably three four hundred hysterectomies, uh, just massive amounts of cases, and yeah, that'll uh, do it, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, with that familiarity that I gained through working with him and that one-on-one time that I spent with him, there were many, many nights where we just sat there and looked at cases together. Um, That really made me appreciate it and understand it. And I think, you know, it's just kind of one of those things, you know, you you love what you know. And so I, I knew endometrial stuff really well. Um, and I thought it was a real, really interesting opportunity because, you know, at the time, and this this is kind of for those history nerds, um, you know, there was these there were two camps of, of subdividing endometrial precancerous lesions. And there was this kind of WHO camp, which talked about mm-hmm. complex hyperplasias and simple hyperplasias. And oh, then do I was, know this? Oh, yeah, 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 right. And then there was the roguish <laughs> EIN camp. And it yeah. was like, well, you don't use that unless you go to the Northeast. And here's the thing is, is you know, I was going to get to go up there and I was so trained by somebody that used a four-tier system and i was also going to be trained by someone who it you know basically invented with a couple of other people ein and the two-tiered system and i thought wow what a wonderful opportunity to see what the heck is going on so i threw myself into it fully um, Uh and and basically just learned everything i could from dr mutter about EIN. And I think that seeing it from both points of view really allowed me to, I mean, one, kind of pick and choose what I like about it, but see what was right and see, you know, why people thought the way that they thought. And it helped me to understand uh, everything that much more. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the tube stuff that happened because Dr. Crumb, uh, he was up there. He would, I, I mean, talk about timing. 
really couldn't have been better timing for me to have landed up there and say like, Hey, I want a big project. And he's like, Oh, oh I've got a project for you. And, you <laughs> know. Oh, now that you're in attending, weren't you just like, Oh, I wish I had fellows just coming in my office and saying, I'd like to do this for you. Oh my gosh. Are you kidding me? I would be the, I'd be so much, I'd be, I'd be productive. Like, <laughs> yeah, <for real. laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so he jumps a big project on you. Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, I, thousands and thousands mm-hmm. of cross sections of fallopian tubes staining mm-hmm. them with different things looking to see mm-hmm. if there were patterns and and mm-hmm. and it was wonderful because it was really fun and it was exhilarating to kind of be on that bleeding edge of we're trying to figure out something about these tubal cancers mm-hmm. uh and you can actually play a role in that and so i mean i was lucky it was that was just dumb luck and timing that i you know walked in there and and did that um and so you know just it was kind of the culmination of both of those things that that's that's where I've kind of fell into those two areas of study and you know I, I the way that I approach research is is I kind of uh, I, I don't really plan um mm-hmm. <laughs> which is it's bad I know that I do the same thing you know I was just talking to another academic pathologist because I have a friend in private practice and she's always says I think the people who do it are most successful find a thing and then they just keep publishing about that. And of course she's right. But my brain is always just like, Hey, that's interesting. Why don't I go yeah. work on that? Hey, what about that over there? Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Well, it, yeah. There's no planning. And, and you, and I think that that's what, <laughs> yeah. that's what I like about it is, you know, all of, I think some of my most fond memories of doing research were problems that we came across during sign out or a tumor board or something yeah. where someone's like, Hey, why does why does this say this? Or why does that tumor do that? Yeah, and you're just yeah. like, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe we should look at it. And, yeah. and um, then you go look it up and there's not a great answer out there or you have maybe a new technique you can apply to it and then off you go. That's right. It. That's exactly right. And so, yeah. um, you know, that's been kind of my philosophy to it. And, and that kind of laissez-faire approach of, you know, just, oh, well, if something pops up, I'll just kind of chase it down. Um, it's good because it, I, I don't feel like there's pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, there's always questions. Mm-hmm. And, and I think if you're teaching, you know, residents, there's always questions. Why do you do this? Why, why do mm-hmm. I, you know, so as long as I'm surrounded by residents, which theoretically I should be until I retire, um, mm-hmm. then I'm going to have questions that need to be answered. And so I just kind of pick my favorites and, and, uh, and, and just kind of go on from there and it's fun. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I I find that's the way my brain works. And then some folks I've talked to usually, I mean, you can probably imagine who they are, the very high achieving sort of high throughput publishers. They're the kind of people who can say, I'm looking at this case right now in this patient. And I think seven years ago, I had another case that looked like this. (laughs) And then 13 years ago, I think I had two other cases. And then they're automatically able to just aggregate those and do some lovely marker on them or figure out that, oh, we were actually calling it Y, but it's actually Z and it's a whole new tumor. And then there they are. You know, there are those kinds of people in the world too. I'm, I I always stand in awe of people like that. And, and I get it. I'm not one of those people. I will never be one of those people. And I, 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 I want to be one of those people. I would yeah. love to be that kind of, you know, like just yeah. brilliant pathologist. But, um, you know, I think kind of accepting that about my my academic, my research career mm-hmm. uh, was important for me not to feel too stressed because I, I you know, yeah. stress comes from that when you have that discordance of your expectations and reality. 
Mm-hmm. And for me to have the expectations of being able to do that would have mm-hmm. drastically conflicted with the real reality of things on the ground. So, yes, that's true. And I, I do know that despite what we might imagine folks like you and I, maybe uh, just a different mindset. And we think that that kind of stuff comes easy to them from interviewing some of those folks. I think they do work a lot. And sometimes, some of them even admit that they work all the time. So um, I know knowing myself that I can't do that. So, um, so we've, we've covered that. So uh, you're very busy. Like I said, your CV is, is full of, of these mentoring activities, teaching admin stuff, and then your research. But um, one thing I noticed from trying to figure out things about you just from reading your CV is that you keep winning teaching awards. It's not something that happened and then you got promoted and then it stopped happening. It keeps happening. So we're going to stipulate that you're a good teacher, um, reinforced by the fact that the people you're teaching are the ones giving you the awards, I assume. So what have you learned um, since becoming an attending physician about teaching? And then another thing I'd be interested to know, because I also grew up in the South um, and went to medical school in Kentucky. Um, What has changed about learning since you were a medical student? Because I assume that when you were in medical school, yeah. it was a very traditional model since I assume they were like my medical school and changed more like later in the process. And what are some tips for success that you rely on? Yeah, that, um, you know, the thing that I think has led to my success as, as a teacher um, and, you know, the, the awards are nice, but really it's, it's, can you, can you reach the students, right? Are they, they learning what you need to need them to know? Yeah. And, and the one thing that I think helps me to do that, um, well, is that I got over the idea where I think I know what the students need to know. Okay. Um, or the residents. I, like, mm-hmm. I, I think it's easy for us as educators sometimes to say, you need to know this because this is what you need to know. Mm-hmm. And, if you take it and you turn it around and you look at it from the student's side and say, you know, what do they need to know for them? What do they need to know for their level? What do they need to know Mm -hmm. to get to the next stage? Um, Mm -hmm. And how do they need to learn it? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, If you look at it that way, as opposed to just all of it coming from say me, this font of wisdom, right. I can sit here and espouse all this stuff. But if I specifically look at their needs and how they how they approach it, um, I, I think that it, it's e- more easily digestible, right? Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I, I tell that to people all the time because um, I get asked to give talks about how to teach medical students. And I was terrified the first time I got asked that mm-hmm. um, because I don't know, like, how to teach. I'm not an educator. I didn't have educational background. You know, I'm just a guy that talks. Um, but but then I <laughs> realized the title of your memoir and then <laughs> come up with the subtitle. Okay, a long sorry. list of my failures and also I'm a guy that talks. <laughs> guy um, that talks. But yeah. you know, I, I, when I started yeah. critically looking at it, I decided uh-huh. that the thing was is I actually just sat down and I said, Okay, well what do they need to know about endometrial pathology? Not what's important to me, not what my research is. Right, right, right. You know, what is what is the most appropriate thing? And then how the most cutting edge thing happening right this moment, not important for medical students if they don't know the first ten steps exactly. Exactly. And so it's that constant like refocusing of what what are the needs of the student? And I Mm -hmm. I think we get lost in that sometimes. You know, I and I, I always remind myself, I've been to a lot of lectures where I sit there and I'm like, I don't have a clue what's going on anymore. Mm -hmm. And 
I don't know if it's sometimes people want to sound smart. Uh, some people don't know how to quote unquote dumb it down for me. Cause I mean, sometimes that's a long way down. You gotta, <laughs> you had to come way down to my level and, and you know, if they don't, then, then I'm mystified. And, yeah. and so that's the last thing I want to do is leave someone mystified, uh, you know, when they're sitting there listening to me talk. So I, I think that focusing on what they need and the same thing for residents, you know, I, I think mm-hmm. that you have to approach it differently for every single resident because they're mm-hmm. all at different areas and they're all at different stages. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that it's hard to do. Uh, and it's especially hard to do now because you're right. And you're like, I went to a very traditional medical school we got mm-hmm. thrown these giant, like they look like phone books and they called yes. them syllabuses. Right. You remember that? Dude? No. They, yes. They, oh, oh, and I remember and, and attendance at lectures in my medical school was for some portion of school or it had just changed was mandatory. So you really? had to sit for eight hours Ew. or they had just changed it. So it was very traditional, very traditional. And subjects were clearly demarcated. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We did I do. Pathology and, and there was no, holding hands between, you know, like say biochemistry and pathology and you no, know, you had anatomy. biochem yeah. and you had yeah. micro and you had farm, right. which meant you had tons oh, of flashcards. Remember that? Oh God. Do I remember that? And, and the and, whiteboards, <laughs> the smell of the markers. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Um, so, you know, that's, that's how ours was. We didn't have mandatory attendance, so we didn't go to class. Like oh, I, okay. I think you could count the number of people in class, like on one hand sometimes. Okay. Um, we, so and you're basically self-taught. We were all, yeah. So we just took these syllabuses and they weren't syllabuses. You know, I guess syllabus is like information about it's, the class. This was every it's a lecture. a sheet of paper with due dates on it. That is right. not a syllabus. It's not a phone book. Yes. No, this yes. was all printed. These were the printed PowerPoints of the lectures. We had oh. the PowerPoints. They gave them Six to, to a page where they yes. were tiny. Yeah. And oh. you had the little oh. lines next to it and you yeah. could write your yeah. notes. And, uh. and so me and my friends kind of banded together, studied through medical school, kind of muddled our way through um i know it's probably just shocking to learn but i was a solid b to c student um i mean just you know it's that's the way it was and and but it was fine we had a good time and everybody learned what they needed to learn uh but now school is so much different the students they're more engaged Mm -hmm. um you know they they really take charge of of their educations which is a good thing you know Mm -hmm. we didn't we just like if they were like hey just learn this phone book and come back in and take these tests we've been like okay and (laughs) go home and you just memorize a bunch of stuff and you go take a test but you know now the students are like they would be like that's that's bs don't do that to us you know we want uh we want the actual uh experience of it which i think right now it doesn't mean that they come to class because they don't Oh. No, and I think it. I think it's very interesting that you mentioned that you were more passive, right? Yeah. And that uh, I think a lot of what we're experiencing as educators at this level of training comes from these students coming from an undergraduate experience that was. It is also completely different than the one that I had. Right. I think the classrooms have all flipped. You know, I've done some reading in this area. It's very complicated, but this idea of there's basically such competition of undergraduate institutions for these students. And so they have these really tailored experiences and the flipped classroom model where they do the basic learning before they go to class and then they expect dynamic interaction. And so if they come to medical school and someone throws a phone book at them, they're going to say, what is this? This isn't how, this isn't how people learn. What are you doing? Yeah, no, they they know, they know that's old school and what they do and and you're, they're right. And you're right. What they want is that, they, they say, okay, I can handle some of the basics. Give me the basics. 
Mm-hmm. And then let's come in and let's let's fine tune it. And we do that a lot here with the medical students. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, we have all these different mobile modalities like team based learning and, and mm-hmm. peer instruction mm-hmm. that we're doing where, you know, they go in and they have a pre assignment and it's usually an old recycle lecture or something like that. Yeah. And then they mm-hmm. come in and we ask really kind of nitpicky uh, clinical type questions where we really delve into the, you know, this is why, or, you know, this is how you would discern these two things. And you have mm-hmm. to have that base level of knowledge, but they're really good about giving themselves that base level of knowledge. Yes. Um, but I think it just sticks so much better. And then what we mm-hmm. see on the clinical side, you know, when students come into their third and fourth years, they, their, their problem solving capacity is so much higher Yes. because of the way that they're being taught. So I, I really find it fascinating and mm-hmm. I really am a big, proponent of it i i think that pathology has been doing that forever that's what we've always done and that's how we've always approached education so for me to see it kind of spill into the other basic sciences and even clinical medicine uh really helps but i you know i i think that we're natural teachers in that regard because of the way we would just you you have your baseline knowledge you have your books you have your you know, mm-hmm. expert path and all this other stuff that people use. And then you have the cases and then yeah. you train on the cases and then your attending comes in and you get down to the nitty gritty as to the whys and the next steps and the yeah. things like that. And that's, yeah. uh, so I think we're, yeah. we're, we're good there, right? Pathologists have been covering that yeah, for have, a while. That's really true. Although I would say my favorite pathologist and maybe not everyone does this as well as everyone else, but the people that I can point to in my life who were, formative for me were the folks who, when you're looking at a cervical biopsy, could say, okay, Natalie, if you call it X, what do you think is going to happen to this patient? Yes. Yes. If you call it Y, what do you think is going to happen to this patient? Absolutely. What what additional testing is this patient going to get? What additional testing will she not get if you don't call it X? Um, And so, and I was always in awe of those people because I thought I can barely even keep track of which way is up on a slide. And you know, treatment algorithms for choriocarcinoma or whatever, you know, I was like, what, what how do you do that? Yeah. And of course, it's a stepwise thing and you have to go a little bit at a time. <laughs> but those but those are the experiences, you're right, where taking basic clinical knowledge and sort of extrapolating it. And the other thing that I've, I'm struck by, and I don't think every educator has this, and I think you sell yourself short, is something I just decided to call educational empathy. Empathy, which is being able to rewind your brain to the level of the person that you are educating. It's hard. Oh it's, yeah, I like it's that. A, That's a, yeah. it's a it's a difficult task. And I also mentor students, but I tend to not just medical students. Sometimes they're trying to get into medicine, and I have to say, like they're studying for the MCAT. I barely remember that, you know, but like just going, like going backwards. And, you know, I mean, when I studied for the MCAT, there were those books that you bought at Barnes and Noble, which is that out of business now? I don't even know. And they were like the yellow book. Do you know what I'm talking oh, about? I it's an MCAT I, I on the front. remember that, that experience. I don't think those yeah. exist anymore. I think it's all flashcards online. The kids are doing whatever they're doing. Oh but yeah. That, I, that's how everybody it, studies now is test questions online. That's, I know. That's the other <laughs> I know. So, but it's just uh, this, ability to take your brain back several steps along the way. And like you said, give people pertinent knowledge, not what you think is important or what is important to you. Or I often find some folks like to um, educate people about stuff that they beef with other academic academicians about, which also isn't very helpful. <laughs> yeah. So- that's, that's what you get to do, you know, with the fellows and 
stuff like that on Fridays after work. Breathe deeply. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. This That's is where so we're going to argue. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Although I do live for um, the moments at use cap where folks are not fighting. I wouldn't use like a negative word about it, but where people are just like having intellectual discussions about and leaders in the field about like, well, I think this is how this works. And I think this is how this works. And I just remember sitting there as a fellow, like I was watching a game show, you know? Oh, so it's the best. Like, and and we, you're not alone. We actually, um, we call those doctor fights. Um, <laughs> and so we would actually, we have a text, text message alert system that we set up every meeting uh, in, uh, in WhatsApp. And so if there's a yeah. doctor fight going on, like the alert goes out and that way, you know, like where to signal. go. Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. You know where to go to watch it. Um, but it's over yeah. the best. Those, I mean, for my money, yes. that is like the best experience there is yeah. to watch two people that are incredibly brilliant, incredibly uh-huh. passionate, uh-huh. and then sometimes incredibly inflamed. Yes. Um, and, and to watch them argue and sometimes yeah. berate each other, which is even better. Which is even better. But it also, you know, I tell trainees, I'm like, the the, the best part is they're always arguing about something that matters. Then, you know, yeah. they're arguing they're arguing about, you know, is this a malignant thing or is it pre-malignant or is it benign? Is it something that leads to X or is it something that we could, you know, maybe dial back treatment on? So it's always big implications for patients in pathology, at least and from my experience, are the things that get um, get that much attention, which is, you know, somewhat reinforcing. But like you said, doctor fights. I love it. Doctor yeah. fights are the best. Doctor fights. I love it. Um, so uh, I did want to ask quickly to segue nicely to talk about USCAP. You're very involved with USCAP. You're on faculty. You've presented. You've done lots of things over your career um, at various stages. Um, I would like to hear from you especially since we're around the same age, how do you think USCAP has changed since you first started going to the meetings um, as a trainee? And then what, since you were involved in planning, taking the meeting virtual, if you want to speak any about that, I don't want to, you know, take away trade secrets or something oh, no, since no, it hasn't yeah. happened yet, but how, how did that ad- ad- adaptation work? And then what do you think, you know, compared to what it used to look like, how do you think USCAP is changing with the times? Yeah. And, and so that's something that I've been just absolutely delighted to see. Um, mm-hmm. I do think, you know, there was a, when I was a trainee and, 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 and when you were a trainee, I think you probably had the same experience where it was kind of an, uh, an old boys and girls club, right? I mean, oh, I just went there and I was scared to even open my mouth. Yeah, I mean, you just kind of knew that there were like these giant personalities in the room. And I always mm-hmm. got the feeling that I would never be anyone other than who was standing in the back of the room by the water cooler trying <laughs> not to like make noise. Um, yes. and, and I still find myself in that situation on occasion. Um, uh-huh. But, you know, I, I found it very intimidating at first. I think just as time's gone on, especially uh, with the way that uh, Dr. Kaminsky's handled the organization, um, mm-hmm. that it's become incredibly inclusive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there is this monumental, I mean, it is a huge, it's a huge push to involve residents, to mm-hmm. involve fellows, to involve junior faculty. And it's exactly where it needs to be. Um, mm-hmm. For me, my favorite part of that meeting is always what happens in between the meetings, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the coffee moments. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's something that we're going to have a hard time with this year. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and we can talk about that in a minute, but I, you know, for me, that was kind of the part where you meet other people, you get other yeah. perspectives, you, you get to argue, maybe not on stage in front of other people and have a doctor fight. Um, but you at least get to like debate something. Right. And that was yeah. always my favorite thing about having a poster was that I could count on, and I do it on purpose now with my residents, which they might not like, but I love being provocative. Um, because I want people to come up and give their points of view and I want to hear them. Wait, so you go to your residence posters and try to beef with them about stuff? No, I try to like, uh, like underhandedly, like make my just prod at them a little bit. No, I try to make them provocative on purpose. So other people will come up and (laughs) it will beef with them. Um, Okay. Perfect. But you know, because I think that that interaction is important. You know, I always tell them it's not anything personal. These are people that, that are interested in what you're doing and they wouldn't mm-hmm. be there talking to you if they weren't interested in what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so take that as a compliment and then engage with this person and see what you can learn. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, that's kind of the beauty of that meeting is that there's just so much information being thrown around everywhere. I mean, if you just look at the hotel lobby and people are sitting there having drinks there, I guarantee you that some blockbuster paper comes out of that interaction you know, every single year. And it's just because people were hanging out together and, and, and talking about pathology. So I love that networking aspect of it. And I love to see how USCAPs pushed that networking. And I think Mm -hmm. the other thing that they've done, and I've been a really big fan of is the, is that interactive microscopy uh, that they've brought on board with it. The, you were leading one of those courses for a while, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I I did a few of, uh, of, of them out at USCAP West and then I've done a, a bunch at the meetings. And, mm-hmm. and for me, that interaction there with the participants uh, really has been my absolute favorite. You know, teaching a course is great, um, you know, you, but it's very detached feeling. You get up there, you give your lecture, you hope you don't say anything stupid. And then you hope that people don't think you're an idiot. Like that's really how I approach giving a lecture. Uh, But when I'm sitting at a microscope with like six to eight or 10 other people and we're Mm -hmm. talking about cases and we're Mm -hmm. talking about our difficulties, both mine and theirs, Mm -hmm. um, I'm learning from them. They're learning from me. I find it much more interactive and much more fulfilling. So those having that become a large component of the meeting, I think has been has been kind of one of those groundbreaking things that they've done. And I hope to see it. I know they're going to expand it because they're incredibly Mm -hmm. popular. Um, mm-hmm. and so I, you know, I think that that's kind of like the next phase of pathology education is why well, look at these static images when we can all sit around and do exactly what we enjoy doing. And that's sitting around a microscope talking about hard cases. Yeah. Um, you know, that's the best way to learn in my opinion. So I, I've really loved the changes that they've made. Um, and you know what else that sounds like? sounds like the medical school curriculum. No, <laughs> it, yeah. I mean, it's, it's all, it's history repeating itself. I think the folks who went to medical school expecting that interaction yeah. are residents and now they're becoming attendings who come to use cap and they don't want to be talked at all the time. No. Right? So that's a natural progression. I think I mean, that's very interesting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we've all been to good lectures, right? I can think of lectures right. that I've been, like, that was a good lecture, but we've also all been to a lot of lectures that we forget. Well, even if you're the most diligent person who can sit still and listen for the longest period of time, everyone has an attention span. And I think having a dynamic, a more dynamic experience, maybe mixed in with lecture seems like a better way to kind of keep people. I have the attention span of a sparrow. So, and it doesn't help that if you're at a meeting, a national meeting, 
you know, with you six friends around you. Yeah, they're all just, I mean, your phone just never stops blowing up. Mm-hmm. And you're with people you haven't seen in a couple of years. Maybe your co-fellow who called you Chaz and you're just, you know, oh, yeah. shooting the, you know, and, and then, you know, you're, you realize that there's like a world-renowned speaker talking and you're giggling or something. You're giggling which... or your friends are like, we're going, we're going out. We're going to get lunch. We're leaving. Our, <laughs> yeah. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. I know. That's hard. So that's, that's a good point. So uh, did you want to speak at all about the, the oh, digital format or how yes, you all have, the digital format. You were on? So yeah. I am excited to see how this plays out. I do think mm-hmm. that it's afforded some opportunities. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, the ability to, to pick and choose any session you want, Mm -hmm. I think is amazing because people are going to get to see some things that they might not have, you know, sometimes you, you say, well, I'm not going to pay the extra money to go to this, Mm -hmm. or I'm not going to have time because they're going to overlap. And I, you know, we can't be in two places at once. And that's, that's eliminated this year. Mm -hmm. So I think for me, one of the things that I'm, really excited about is I'm going to get to see some stuff and hear some people talk that I don't normally get to see or hear. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I think that that on-demand delivery, the way that everything's going to be served up Mm -hmm. uh, is going to be really convenient for people. Um, Because one of the considerations that we had to make was, you know, when you're at the meeting, you're at the meeting and you can do whatever you want. You don't have to worry about work. You don't have to worry about cases. You don't have to worry about frozen sections, but that's not Mm -hmm. going to be the reality for any of us this year. Yeah, that we're all going to be at work and then we're all going to be at home, you know, with kids and spouses and, you know, pets and everything going on. We're not going to be able to take time to listen to the meeting ourselves. Right. There's, so there was that that part about traveling to a site and being remote and being there and in the moment that's going to be missing. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact that the way everything's going to be served up and it's going to be on demand for the most part. Uh, is going to allow people to to find that quiet time to listen to that lecture. Uh, but mm-hmm. then there's also that need to digest that material and to ask questions and to talk about it. And mm-hmm. so there's a they've got a really innovative way of having just these kind of kind of post uh, post lecture kind of chat sessions mm-hmm. uh, where you'll be able to talk you know face to face because it's going to use you know video chat. Uh, mm-hmm. with the people that are giving the lectures and to ask them questions. And so the, one of the things that I like about it is, you know, the ability to like, listen to a lecture, send your question in, and then mm-hmm. the person to get the question and then drop into this chat yeah. room and answer the question yeah. and then talk about it. That's going to be. So nice. the lectures are, are recorded and then the live chat part is obviously. Correct. Yeah. The same day. So okay. it's going to yeah. be like a set time for the live chats and you'll know when you need to drop in to, mm-hmm. you know, hear mm-hmm. the people talk about it, but you, you can watch the lecture anytime before that. And the same goes for the posters. The posters are recorded and then you can drop in and speak to the trainee. Who right. Some of the, the posters program. are recorded. So platforms mm-hmm. are going to be kind of done like platforms. Okay. Uh, so they're going to try to make that as pure of an experience as possible. Um, okay. No, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I think a lot of people really value that platform session for me. That's kind of like, my highlight of the meeting is going to the platforms and yes. Although having presented one, I don't know if I've ever been that nervous in my life. Oh, it's pretty horrible. Isn't it? You're like, Oh, now I get to talk about something in a room full of experts. Um, yeah, I know. Right. Yeah. It was pretty horribly intimidating. I don't know that I would have been less intimidated on a digital format. I think it's just my personality. Like you said, I don't know because you made this comment a few minutes ago, you get up to give a lecture and you think the whole time, I hope I don't say anything stupid. And I hope people don't (laughs) think I'm a moron. I don't think, just don't think that everyone has that experience. I think some people get up there and they think I'm going to ace this. 
I, I don't know who those people who, are. Yeah, right. Who are those people? Um, <laughs> wow. To have that kind of confidence, that would be something. I, I mean, but I would probably be an incredibly obnoxious person if I was that confident. <laughs> Yeah, you wouldn't have educational empathy for sure. Oh, it yeah. would be gone. Maybe those things don't travel together on the same locus or something. <laughs> yeah. um, so that's really, I'm really excited about USCAP this year. The other thing I think is exciting is that folks from maybe under-resourced areas, not just around the world, but also in the States or, you know, young faculty who can't get time off also have access to the materials yeah. and to that interactive experience. And I think going forward, it would be nice if it was a hybrid. So there were opportunities for people who couldn't make it to the meeting to still participate. I think, I hope maybe that would be possible. That's definitely been discussed. Yeah. And, you know, I think yeah. that you have to always look at those silver linings. And that's kind of one thing yeah. that the pandemic shown is that, you know, yeah. we found some silver linings and one of them is, is exactly what you're talking about. Somebody's yeah. got to stay home and work. You know, democratization yeah. of the little d democratization of, of educational opportunities. And, and that's something that I've realized interacting with trainees through digital formats. I'm interacting with folks in parts of the world. I probably never would have not bothered to, because that sounds too flippant, but I never would have had the opportunity to reach out to these folks because I would have been focusing on my institution. Does right. that make sense? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so that that's, that's been yeah. big. And I, I, I do hope to see some of that stick around. And, and I think that yeah. the leadership knows that that's an issue. And I think that they're yeah. invested in seeing some of that stick around. Yeah. Yeah. It would be nice too. And the other thing that I've always wanted USCAP to do, which I understand why they don't do is record the lectures. Mm -hmm. um, Cause they post the handouts online, but you, you know, that, the more a speaker knows, it's inversely proportional to how much they put on the slide. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it's right? just a bunch of pictures. <laughs> it's just a couple pictures or a word. And you're like, oh, man, I bet they talked about this for five minutes and I get a word. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of times they'll direct you to a paper. It's just not the same experience as hearing them talk as I know as someone who used to go to the meetings. And when I was in community practice and I was young, I almost never could get time off. And then as a young parent, it also was very difficult, as oh you gosh, yeah. can probably attest to. So um, that's really exciting. I'm looking forward to the USCAP experience this year. And I will be working and also participating. So it'll be an interesting experiment for me. Yeah. Um, so now to move off pathology just a bit to kind of wrap up, you live in Little Rock, Arkansas. And I assume you're from Arkansas, though you can correct me if I'm wrong. And I think probably when Little Rock, when Arkansas pops into people's heads forever and ever, love him or hate him, people are going to think of Bill Clinton. Oh, right? yeah. That's sort of the place that launched him into the national spotlight. But um, so what would you like people to know about Arkansas and Little Rock besides that? Like, what do you, what's your favorite thing to do there? Oh, my gosh. Well, okay. So, you know, uh, so my, what I would tell people about Arkansas and about Little Rock in particular is it's not as bad as you think or have been told. <laughs> um, and I know that's a horrible thing to say. Um, but I, no. I got I get used to that having been from Kentucky. Yeah, trust me. I, with you. I, I mean, I used yeah. to say my, my go-to back in the day was we all wear shoes, we have internet, and mm -hmm. our roads are paved. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. We yeah. do have those mm -hmm. things. But no, it, it, it's, um, you know, it's Little Rock is a, is a great city. Um, it's, it's actually somewhat progressive all i gotta do is mm. point to the county by county voting map for the last election and you'll see what i mean <laughs> i feel you uh, i was from a big city in a southern state i know exactly yeah, what you mean it's yes, it's yeah. pretty progressive there's a lot of great restaurants yeah. there's a lot of good stuff mm -hmm. to do um mm -hmm. the people are incredibly friendly um mm -hmm. you know it's 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 i think it's special to be able to you know be friendly and be friends with all of the people that you work with um just people that are around you there's a lot of smiling going on 
Um, and yeah. you know, it's, it's kind of, people always say that when they come down here, they're like, wow. Okay. So the buildings are bigger than I thought. Uh, people smile all the time <laughs> and you can park anywhere you want. And I said, well, yeah, pretty anywhere much anywhere, right. Even yeah, on sidewalks yeah. sometimes, if you just leave your yeah. hazard lights on. Um, <laughs> that was a move in Baltimore. People just turned every oh, yeah. place you were into a parking spot. Yeah, yeah. There's a flat spot. You can park on it, but no, I mean, <laughs> it's nice to be able to like go to a nice restaurant and park yeah. out in front of it and not have to pay. Not have to spend an hour finding a place to put your, or like take a cab or something. It's, yes. It's, I understand what you're saying. So, you know, it's, it's easy living now. What do yeah. I like to do? I mean, well, the, so the state model, incorrect for the pandemic and pretend we're not living through that right now. Well, what do you do normal times? Yeah, yeah. I used to. Yeah. Well, I do love going to restaurants, but um, uh-huh. you know, that, that obviously has been kind of hit, but a lot of the great restaurants that are near my house have been doing amazing takeout. So that mm-hmm. hasn't suffered as much as one would think. And the other mm-hmm. good thing is that um, most of the activities that me and my family take part in for fun, haven't been affected at all by the pandemic. Okay. Um, boating, for example. Yeah, boating. Oh, you know, I did last summer taught one of the you know, other two girls, the girls are too young, but my son, he's old enough now. So he's, uh, he's, he's old enough now to wake surf. So we taught him how to wake surf. Nice. And so, you know, we do a lot of outdoor activities. Um, we go camping, um, we play on boats, uh, go fishing, uh, I, I'd say I go hunting, but I don't really hunt. I don't even take a gun. I just go hang out. At clubs okay. on the way in the woods, let's go in the woods. Hunting clubs, yeah, hunting clubs, hunting clubs. That's are a thing. Oh yeah, absolutely. Huh. And, and so a, a hunting club is just you think about it this way: it's like a it's a clubhouse um, for people to go to in the woods where they put all of the old furniture from their houses that they don't want anymore, and then okay. you know like other things like you know beer vending machines and and gigantic beer vending machines. Beer vending. This machines. sounds kind of like a ski hut meeting a fox hunt. Yeah, it's a lot like that. You know, like okay. up north when you would like go ice fishing yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you have like your place where you go and it's kind of your fortress of solitude. Yes. These are just houses in the woods um, okay. where you go and you, you watch like old 90s DVDs, old movies. and, and you It's know. like the Arkansas version of a London-based gentleman's club. Very much. Like like that. And, I like yeah. that. and so, you know, like my function when I go is not to to hunt, but to, to you know, cook and eat breakfast and to play shoot out. the breeze yeah ha, ha, exactly. ha, ha, ha. <laughs> uh, we know it, you know so that's that's kind of big in the winter that that's what people do in the winter um, and then mm-hmm. the, in the summer we're we're outside you know there's a lot of hiking trails a lot of backpacking a lot of camping and a lot of boating that goes on so that's uh that's kind of what uh and and we're you know we're trying to raise our kids that way too um yeah they, they, outside. they love it outside yeah. and so yeah uh we're big that's on great. screen time can't have too much screen time right Although I will say, you know, early in the pandemic, someone tweeted, they said, I know one doctor's recommendation I'm not going to be following during the pandemic, colon mark, screen time for my kids. <laughs> like, yeah. like, yeah, I feel you. Oh, my goodness. Well, yeah, there was um, a lot of that early on. And, and it actually rebounded into some really good summer activities. Like, I think they got my kids got tired of screen time, of screen time early on because everybody was so hunkered down and we were all like, what the hell's going to happen next? You know, and yeah, um, yeah. No one was going outside or anything. And so uh-huh. when they were like, you mean we can go to the lake and we can, you know, tube and do right. all these things. It made them appreciate all that stuff even more. That's a good point. Did. Yeah. And yeah. Um, they ended up loving it. I mean, just, right. you know, a lot of fun. So there's a lot of great outdoors things to do. I, I you know, don't ever yeah. be uh, hesitant to come down to Little Rock and 
and come play outside. It's a I think that's all I have. This is a it's been a long show. I <laughs> I always budget like twenty minutes for these, and we've talked for an hour and ten minutes, and that's fine. That's fine. It's lovely. You're easy to talk to. I really appreciate you coming and doing this. I feel like I'm probably stealing your me time right now. So not at all. This was my me time today, so it's it works out perfectly. That's the beauty awesome. of me time. It's flexible. <laughs> That's going to be the fourth subtitle of your um, <laughs> memoir. Okay. Thanks for joining me today, Matt. I really appreciate it. Have a good day. My pleasure. You too. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye. So welcome to Deeper Level, the podcast about pathology, medicine, and science mostly. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome a special guest, Dr. Karen Talia. Dr. Talia received her Bachelor of Medicine, Bachelor of Surgery with first class honors from the National University in Melbourne, Australia, and her fellowship of the Royal College of Pathologists of Australia. She has also completed cytopathology fellowship training and is a consultant anatomic, anatomical pathologist at the Royal Women's Hospital in Melbourne, Australia, as well as a consultant anatomic pathologist and cytopathologist for the VCS Foundation, also in Melbourne. So Dr. Tilly is here as a part of my effort to highlight the innovative and exciting opportunities available within our field of GYM pathology. And um, Dr. Talia, Karen, thank you so much for joining me. How are you today? Hello, Natalie. Thank you for the invitation. I'm well, thank you. Good. And uh, just for the listeners, um, we already tried to record this once, kind of, because I got confused about what day it is. So for Dr. Talia... <laughs> tomorrow. Today it is yesterday for me here in Rhode Island and she is already in the next day. I always am jealous of Australia celebrating New Year ahead of the rest of the world. So I guess I should have remembered that. But anyway, I'll get there eventually. I need more friends around the world, clearly. Um, So could you tell us more about yourself aside from the biographical information I provided above, how you came to work where you do and, you know, did you grow up in a scientific family and how you chose medicine as a career? Yeah, so um, I didn't grow up in a medical family, but I guess there was a little bit of a scientific angle. Um, my dad is uh, from Italy. He was uh, a migrant post-World War II. His family migrated from southern Italy to Australia. Um, my mum is third-generation Australian. Um, and my dad's family were farmers, but um, he he sort of paved away, I guess, um, not in the sciences purely, but he was an electronics engineer and he um, designed and manufactured specialised equipment that's used in television broadcasting and had his own business doing that for many years here in Melbourne and mum worked alongside him. So I guess he was he was sort of always fascinated by physics and, and science and that must have rubbed off on me. And um, I was reflecting on this and when, when I was growing up um, as a kid, there were a number of really prominent TV shows that were all about science and we used to just watch those religiously as a family. There was um, a show called Why Is It So, another show called The Curiosity Show, and there was also a show you probably know um, In Search Of, Leonard Nimoy, um, which was all about... Are you a, he's, he's, a, he's the Star Trek person, right? Did yeah, he's the Star Trek, Trek guy. And um, all this stuff was, it, it's, it was just so big in, in my childhood and obviously made an impact. There was this kind of um, mindset of questioning things, I suppose, and, and the, the whole kind of technology explosion that occurred during the 70s and 80s, I guess, was part of that and it was in the movies, Raiders of the Lost Ark, 
that kind of stuff, Star Wars. So growing up, I guess science was um, was on the radar um, pretty much all the time for me. And um, and at school, I obviously enjoyed science, maths, physics. There was also a big drive um, on locally to try and get girls to do the sciences and mathematics. Oh, even then? Okay. Yeah, because yeah, that's become yeah. very popular in the United States. But I think you might, I was reading your, your CV about how long you've been in practice. I'm not going to ask you when you were born, but I think you're just a little bit older than me. Oh yeah. When I was young (laughs) STEM, but when I was young STEM and sort of pushing women into those, you know, science, technology, engineering, and math, it wasn't really talked about like it, like it is now. So that's interesting that you all were doing it when you were young because clearly it paid off, right? Yeah. yeah, well, look, I, I, got, I remember being called into the principal's office, as were all of us, in year 11, which is the second last year oh, of school. Oh, okay. So, and see, we, in, the, in the States, when you say that, that means you're in trouble. <laughs> it usually means you're office. in trouble here, too. <laughs> but oh, okay. we, all this, we all had to have okay. this sit down with the principal um, to, to talk about our career path. And I remember mm-hmm. him telling me I should do engineering. Um, oh. Yeah. And, and, like your yeah. dad, you know. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, um, and I remember thinking how dry and dull engineering seemed um, oh. at the time. Just the, the, the pure sort of facts and, and that's how I feel pure, about it too. I just yeah. wonder what your dad thinks about you saying. Yeah, that. I know. <laughs> <laughs> cool. When he when he talked about it, it kind of came to life. But um, oh, you know, well, that's it, a good it, gift. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And medicine just seemed like the natural progression of, of melding science with I guess a human element a more Mm -hmm. dynamic kind of a profession I suppose um which is probably really unfair to all the scientists out there um but but I guess that's how I found my way into medicine and luckily you know I sweated through year 12 hoping I'd get enough marks to get in and 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 luckily I was successful and I got in um at Monash Uni yeah, so, so the, the system in Australia is organized, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, it's organized similar to the UK where you, um, it's it's like you, what we would call high school, you kind of go straight from there to college and you, you have to make up your mind a little bit earlier, but it's also based on how well you're doing in school, how many choices you have of what you can do, right? Isn't that how it works? Absolutely, yeah. So it's a competitive process and... Um, yeah. There's only a certain number of places, and when I was going through, there were only two universities in Victoria, the state that I live in, that offered medicine. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. there were, I think, 120 places at Monash where I went, and probably a simple, similar number at Melbourne Uni. And um, year 12 is the year when you sit the the big final exams. It was called VCE, Victorian Certificate of Education, when I did it. And mm-hmm. you basically got a numerical score for each subject you did, and they added those up, and that was your number, and that was your ticket to um, get into university and each course had a cutoff. So, um, oh, I I, see. yeah, so you had to score above that cutoff score in order to be eligible to gain a place. So it's pretty. Yeah, I think most people in the States probably know most about this because of Harry Potter, which is extremely yeah. unfortunate. <laughs> That's probably where we know. <laughs> but I know I hear people talk about A levels, right? This is what you're talking about. It's like yeah, yeah. In so in yeah, the yeah, UK, yeah. it's O levels and A levels. I think yeah. A levels is the most senior uh, one, and that's right, the, right. the entry um, to university yeah. um, stage. And yeah, and, and nowadays it's it's a pretty similar uh, system here. It's modified a little bit now in that I think it's not just uh, marks, the, the academic uh-huh. marks. I think there's an interview process. 
um, there's a bit more screening done to try and ensure that you've got a personality that is appropriate. <laughs> they're doing that. They're doing that now for a medical school too. But you're right. For a long time, it was only board scores, right? But now they're trying to say, okay, we want to make sure you have, you know, other interests and yeah. can hold your head up and talk to people. Basically. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah. And so, look, I was lucky enough to. Um, to get enough marks to get in. My, my other choices were all science um, degrees, but um, I managed to to squeak in and get into to medical school and um, loved it. Yeah, it, yeah it, was, it was fantastic. And um, when I came out of six years of medical school, um, uh, pathology was not at all on my radar because I guess the whole emphasis um, in your training is about teaching patients, uh, treating patients, interacting yes. with with the the public, and and trying to make people better, um, cure disease. Uh-huh. So um, I did my intern year at Monash Medical Centre, which was the hospital affiliated to the university that I trained at, and all of my cohort of of friends were all. Um, heading toward physician training, which I think mm-hmm. being a physician here in Australia is like being an internal medicine specialist in the US. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I pretty much just followed the flock and um, entered the physician training program. So I did after my intern year, which is a year where um, you rotate through medicine, surgery, um, emergency um, and also are sent out to the country, um, which is pretty brutal as a brand new junior doctor um Mm -hmm. yeah so after the intern year that's when we start to differentiate and decide what we want to do do we want to be a physician do we want to be a surgeon a psychiatrist a general practitioner a pediatrician uh and that was the point at which I thought I'll give physician training a crack and um and I, I had this idea that maybe oncology might be what I'd like to do um, and I, I ended up doing two years of, of basic physician training at Monash um, and even started studying for the first part um, physician exam. And so that meant every 10 weeks we would rotate through a different uh, specialty of internal medicine, so cardiology, respiratory medicine, rheumatology, renal disease, mm-hmm. um, all of those. And, and where things started to fall apart for me were... Um, in my third year out, so my second year of physician training, our hospital was um, going through a really tough time with staffing. I don't don't know what the basis to it was, but we'd lost a number of our uh, more senior um, medical residents. And so what they did was those of us who were in our third year, they pushed us up into fourth-year roles. And um, I found myself being um, asked to work in intensive care as an ICU registrar. So registrar is the next step up. That's when you're kind of the boss of the junior doctors and um, somewhat more experienced and skilled than the junior staff. And I I had to do a 12-week rotation as the registrar in charge of ICU at Monash, which is a tertiary referral centre. The ICU then was 15 beds, paediatric and adult. And I was just thrown in the deep end. I didn't have any real skills other than putting in a an arterial line and, and taking blood, putting in gel codes. I couldn't do, you know, central lines. I couldn't intubate. Um, and I was in there on my own overnight often um, looking after critical patients. And that was, that was really stressful um, and quite trying. Um, and that is when I started to question, you know, do I really want to do this? 
Um, and then uh, following that, I had a rotation in palliative care, which um, was stressful for other reasons. And so I was um, really yeah, reflecting. That's quite a back-to-back rotation oh, schedule there. Yeah, it was, it was mental health. Yes, indeed. So I got, to this, yeah. I got to this point where I thought, I don't know if I really am enjoying clinical medicine anymore. It's either incredibly stressful and I'm, I'm out of my depth and needing to constantly rely on, you know, senior colleagues or people are dying. <laughs> so yeah. I, I, um, I, I stopped and I sort of reflected on what I was doing. I went off to the, um, the director of physician training and this was a real low point. I, I sat down with him and said, look, I'm not sure if I want to continue in the training program. And um, he just looked me in the eye and said, well, if you can't cope, get out. <gasps> oh, that <laughs> sounds like a peach. Yeah. Oh, man. So that was, yeah. there was, there was no, um, no support. The no, anti-mentor. Yeah. yeah I, don't, an- exactly. I don't like that. Person. So it was a really cold, um, cruel, um, you know, the unhelpful uh, response to, mm-hmm. you know, a junior doctor who I wasn't in distress, but I was unsure. Struggling. Know, and, yeah, yeah, struggling yeah. and questioning, was this worth it? Um, mm-hmm. And so that was that was kind of the nail in the coffin. And, um, and so I think I, anybody who makes it through their entire medical training process and never feels the way you felt, I don't yeah. know. I felt yeah. that way. I think it's yeah. a pretty common thing. For, and for someone who's in a leadership position to have no skills to handle that. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'll drop it now. But yeah. yeah, just so no then, empathy. Yeah. yeah. And, and no, no ability to explore yeah. the issues and so on. Anyway, mm-hmm. but that was yeah. that was the turning point. And that was when I reflected on um, what I'd loved most during medical school. And it was pathology. Um, I just loved the way understanding and knowing pathology sort of tied everything together it seemed central to understanding disease um and so i i went and knocked on the door of the uh, head of pathology at monash medical center that was dr beatrice susel and asked her if there were any jobs coming up and there there were jobs the following year so i i got my my start in pathology there at monash um that's great yeah so it was a fortuitous journey into pathology and not not an entirely pleasant one (laughs) no but did you did you know pathologists or did you just know what they were doing because of your medical school curriculum I'm just curious how you knew that it was something you could do because in the states it's actually not uncommon for folks to make it all the way through medical school and not know what pathologists do so yeah actually I think this is where um my training um was vital because I did Mm -hmm. Not didn't know pathologists personally, but I certainly knew of the work they did through the course of our training. And I don't know that this still exists in medical training, which is a real pity. Um, but there were there were two things um, at a hospital that I trained at in my final year, the Alfred Hospital. Every Friday morning, there was a, a session in the pathology department, which it wasn't essential. It wasn't uh, mandated that we go, but if you were interested, you could go. And a pathologist would show macroscopic um, specimens, so gross specimens, mm. and and we'd all stand around in little Padua-style theatre and they would quiz us on what we thought the pathology was. And so they were interactive sessions and they were fun. They were um, amusing, entertaining, uh, lighthearted, 
Um, and these these pathologists were kind of rock stars. You know, they were charismatic and and really interested in what they were doing. And and so there was oh, how there lovely. was that, yeah, that that's was the that reputation was, we all have, right? Yeah. To be charismatic yeah, rock star. Totally. I want to go there. <laughs> yeah, so these people. There, <laughs> there were two pathologists yeah. there who who made an impression. Um, and then when we actually studied pathology as medical students, we would break into small tutorial groups, and you know, about ten of us would sit in a little room with with a pathologist teaching us um, and we'd often have a whole pile of pots that we would look at and we'd be going through the pots and discussing the the macroscopic um, features. And the the pathologist I had who was my tutorial um, teacher was was also a dynamic young um, female and and so I had those two experiences as well as um, a positive experience um, learning all of the facts um, about yeah. pathology as a medical student, that, that kind of all culminated, I guess, in me making that choice. Um, but absolutely no exposure at all as a as a working doctor to to the pathology service. Um, we never went anywhere near the lab. Um, yeah, I didn't, that's, yeah, that's I didn't even common. know where the lab was I, in in I know or, in Monash. Or just a black box. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I really enjoy having non pathology trainees come rotate because I think it's a uh, it's a service to them for the rest of their career to know what mm. is going on behind the scenes, you know, because like you have a breast surgeon do a mastectomy and call you the next day for results. And you, I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but you know what I'm oh, saying? You no, have to explain yeah, to absolutely. people like these are the 10 steps that are between me and the answer. So, um, yes. yeah. So, uh, so you choose pathology and then um, how did you end up in the field of GYN pathology was there a certain person who influenced that decision? Um, no, not really. And this is another point of difference, I think, between pathology here and in the US. We're, um, mm-hmm. We don't become sort of differentiated into um, subspecialty pathologists um, necessarily at all in our career path mm-hmm. here in Australia. So we don't have a, a formalised fellowship program. We don't have the capacity to in anything? choose. No, not no. Oh, I think wow. there, okay. there, there's a separate stream. I'm pretty certain there's a separate stream for forensic pathology and for maxillofacial um, pathology. I think, but but every mm-hmm. every other anatomical pathology discipline all sits under the one umbrella. And for our five years of training as a pathologist, we train in everything. So we we are um, spat out at the other end. Um, able to and expected to report the full spectrum of anatomical pathology and cytopathology. Mm. And most jobs um, in, in Victoria, in Australia, um, are uh, expecting you to be able to show up and report every organ system. Um, certainly in private, that that is, uh, as far as I know, is, is pretty much the norm. I think, mm-hmm. you know, in some public hospital settings, there there is where there are dedicated specialty services like a renal transplant unit or a cardiac transplant unit. There are there will be pathologists who develop a subspecialty interest, um, mm-hmm. and increasingly, I guess over the last couple of decades, that that is happening um, in each public hospital department. There's usually um, you know, there are certain pathologists that do the breast work, certain pathologists that do the gynae, certain pathologists that do the livers and, and GI. But that doesn't mean they do those exclusively and there's an expectation sure. that you, you know, when it's busy or when it's 
holiday season and everyone's away that you can flex up and do everything if need be. So in your current job, you do that? No, so I'm, I'm, um, I'm different to the the normal, I guess, in that. um, So the the way I found my way into gynae pathology was, and this is often how it happens, um, Uh it it was kind of because no one else wanted to do it. (laughs) (laughs) You know how many people answer this question that way? (laughs) Yes. Or like I I remember when I was a resident and there was one pathologist in our department who was really good at non-neoplastic lung and I you know, idolized this person because I thought that is such a hard thing to do. And I I was like, oh, wow, how did you get interested in this? He was like, I got here, I was young and no one else wanted to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's exactly what happened to me. I mean, I did did choose, so so I said before there there aren't fellowships there. When I graduated from the the training program, there was a single fellowship on offer and that was a one-year placement here at BCS learning Mm -hmm. cytopathology gynae cytopathology Mm. and it included um, gynae histology and rotating through the Mm. Royal Women's um, reporting the full spectrum of gynae histo. And the reason I took that was because the alternative was going straight into private. Uh, There weren't many jobs. Um, And Uh and private in those days, I think to a lesser extent these days, was pretty brutal, very busy, um, not a lot of support. Work hour-wise. Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. so I took the fellowship option and did that for a year, and then I went into private. <laughs> um, oh, so you were in private practice? Yeah, I was in private practice practice for three years, and mm-hmm. didn't love it. Um, I you know, that's what, exactly how many years I was in private practice when I yeah. decided I didn't love it. Yeah, years. yeah, that's how long I left. Yeah, so. it, it kind of you, you try it on, you, you sort of start to enjoy it, and then you realise oh, I don't know that I'm suited to this sort of high throughput, low complexity work. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, it just wasn't that satisfying. And then an opportunity arose in a public hospital, um, teaching hospital, which was a hospital where I'd also trained. So I went there, Mm -hmm. I was there for 13 years, and that's where I showed up. And because I'd done the gynae cyto year, Mm -hmm. and because no one else really wanted to touch it, um, that was Mm -hmm. how I became a gynae pathologist. So I started out, you know, reporting not just gynae but you know doing mm-hmm. gastrointestinal stuff and pluripotent and, that's what I call it they yeah pluripotent yeah yeah and then I became terminally differentiated <laughs> terminally differentiated yeah. yeah and I think the the way you're talking about the Australian system I think it's similar to the the system in the states because you know the people who trained me um were probably finishing residency in the 90s in the early 90s and they they're pathology residency here was five years then and then they chopped a year off they made it four years and so then I think all the people who were hiring trainees looked at them and said but you didn't do as much training as I did so that I think that's when the fellowship thing started to become a norm because it didn't used to be people used to leave residency and go straight to jobs yeah and then it became less common and now I think the fellowship thing is almost being driven by clinicians I don't know if it's like that in Australia but Wow. In the States, even when I was in community practice, sometimes I worked for a network of hospitals, gynae surgeons would ask their pathologist to send me cases to look at because they yeah. knew I had trained in GYN, you know, so it sort of became a thing. And I'm not saying they didn't ask me to send my liver biopsies to the GI person. They most certainly did. But it just, I wonder if it'll stay that way in Australia. Do you think it will? I think it's got to change. I think with the explosion yeah. of knowledge 
that we have yeah. that we're with. Yeah. You know, you just look at the WHO blue books and compare the current yeah. 2020 female genital tract to the, the one from yeah. 24. It's about twice as big. It's twice the size. Isn't it? I love it, but it's bigger. <laughs> How can yeah. you play across, um, you know, 20 different organ systems or not, not uh-huh. but, you know, 20 different fields, not that there are that many, yeah. but it feels like yeah. it's it's just a mammoth task to try and stay up to date right. um, and yeah. safe. Um, it, it's hard enough just staying across gynae pathology. So I think it's inevitable that we, uh, I don't know if we'll have a formalised fellowship system like you do, but right. I think it's inevitable that we need to accept that we can't all be generalists and that there is a place for subspecialty practice. Um, and and that was that was kind of the basis upon which I left the the public hospital where I'd been for a very long time. Is there was there wasn't they there wasn't a preparedness to embrace um, uh-huh. subspecialty practice. It was, I mean, some on the staff there I think were were comfortable with it, but there were a, there was a vocal minority that felt that uh, we should all be able to report everything, um, yeah. which is not really the the way I wanted to work and so um, th- there's one hospital in, in Melbourne, the Royal Women's, which is a, uh, a specialist um, public hospital which just deals with women's health and it's predominantly gynaecological and obstetric medicine but it also has a small breast um, service and so that, that was sort of the natural um, home for me I guess uh, other than um, here at BCS, which is also a purely um, gynecological um, pathology, but more of a cytology base. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess it was kind of inevitable that if I wanted to um, stay pure and, and, and just report gynae work, that I, I was going to wind up working uh, at the women's or BCS or both, which is what I'm doing now. Oh, that's great. So is your, the institutions you work in, are they considered what we would call in the States academic? Do you have trainees? Are there medical students around? Stuff like that? Yeah. So um, the women's, yes. BCS, no. Okay. BCS is a, a not-for-profit um, public laboratory um, that doesn't, it's not accredited uh, as a training um, location for okay. pathology trainees, which makes sense because it's a very specialised um scope of work we, we just deal with um, gynecyto and um, a limited spectrum of, of um, histology primarily cervical biopsies but also some endometrial um, and vulval biopsies so there wouldn't be enough mm-hmm. here for uh, a sure. trainee to to get enough exposure um, but the women certainly we um, our trainees rotate through the women's they they do just one year there um, we have three trainees on site um at one time yeah so yeah yeah so I guess it's an academic institution in that sense but um we don't have a defined academic career path I guess um in Australia like you do in the US um so those of us who work in the public hospital system um we um report uh, 24-7, you know, it's every day on service. Um, but so I, I guess what I'm trying to say is we don't have uh, dedicated time to, to do the academic work, to do things like mm-hmm. research. Um, to publish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So all of that's mm-hmm. done in your own time um, mm-hmm. if you want to do that. And it's not it's not expected that we 
we but I, I assume that teaching is a, is is yes. assumed if you yeah have training te- teaching is, about yeah yeah absolutely and there's no formalized um, system that's mandated uh, every hospital runs it, um, its own um, version of a, a training system um, we you know we roster pathologists on for tutorials on a weekly basis and then some of us will do more or less than than that um, it's very idiosyncratic mm-hmm. yeah yeah sometimes it feels that way here too but they do have you know formalized residency training programs but I think even residents would tell you it's very it's very attending dependent is what we um yeah. so I've I've put my foot in my mouth before um <laughs> about the uh, which I do pretty frequently I remember I'll tell you a funny story when I was a medical student or I don't even know, I may have even been in college at the, in university, you know, university. And I, I was in a hospital shadowing somebody and this woman who was, I think an ER doctor and she was very tired and maybe a little bit irritable, which is probably understandable. And she said, I'm on staff. And I thought that meant that she was like a, <laughs> a secretary. <laughs> But it meant that she was like a physician. I had yeah. never heard someone use the word staff. I mean, to me as a kid, I thought that meant anyway. So the first time I met someone in the UK system who was a consultant, I'm like, huh, does yeah. that mean you sign out consults? And they were like, oh, no, that's <laughs> not what that means. So is that the highest rank? If you all don't do academic ranks, like, you know, assistant, yeah. associate, full professor, consultant just means you're on staff at that hospital. Yeah. That's how that works. Exactly. So a consultant is a qualified specialist. Um, so that's that's somebody who has their fellowship um, exams passed and okay. is employed by the hospital uh, in that capacity. In anything, in internal medicine or yeah. pulmonology yeah. So you can be a consultant, pathology. surgeon, okay. Okay. a physician, an obstetrician, gynecologist, a pathologist. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And then the tier below that is registrar and registrars are trainee specialists. And then the tier below that is residents and residents are, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, residents are are still figuring out what they want to do. Um, So residents haven't specialized yet in any field. Yeah. I mean, these are very general, um, in very general terms and certainly relevant to an hour. Yeah. Residents in the States have already picked a field, you know, they've already decided what they want to do. They're residents in pathology. Yeah. Yeah. So we're registrars in pathology. Yeah. Yeah. I like that though, registrar. It's a, uh, it's a very British word. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. So now I wanted to shift to talk about your research a little. It's interesting they don't give you time to do this and you must be just doing it for fun. Um, you've published and spoken pretty extensively about cervical cancer, especially gastric type, which makes sense given your specialty. Um, can you tell me how you became interested in this area and what you're working on now? Because this field seems to be sort of really developing at a good rate right now. So, how is it developing? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, initially um, you said, I, I think, what did you say? I must be doing it for fun. Doing it and you're doing it for fun. I'm yeah. joking. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it is fun for you. I find certain things about my academic career very fun, but um, it's it's a little bit unnerving that they don't give you any dedicated time to do it at all. So. Yeah. And look, I did, I did try and push for that um, when I was at hospital but it just wasn't um, tenable um so yeah it's very much something that you do I guess out of interest um uh-huh. and it's not expected or required that we um mm-hmm. that we pursue research um how I got interested was um I think like all things when you have a challenging case that mm-hmm. that 
creates questions that need answering and um, and I was lucky enough to have a really unusual case of a vaginal adenocarcinoma. It was um, almost 10 years ago in 2011 um, and I I really didn't know what I was dealing with um, and it seemed to be arising in association with atypical adenosis, which was also a, a fairly poorly defined entity. And interestingly, it was in a young woman who had a congenitally malformed uterus, so uterus didelphus. Hmm. So it was this really weird case that actually I inherited from a colleague because they um, it was one of those hot potato cases. <laughs> um, the best kind. Yeah. yeah Sometimes yeah. you learn the most from those, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. And and that was how it all started. It, um, Glenn McCluggage had been to Australia and spoken at our IAP um, meeting in 2010. Um, mm-hmm. So that was very recent to the timing of when this case arrived. And I, I sent this case off first for an, an expert opinion to Jim Scurry, who's um, a very experienced um, pathologist here in Australia. He's in New South Wales, another state. Um, and he and I were both a little uncertain as to what we were dealing with. So Jim said, look, Glenn's just been here. Why don't we send it over to Glenn? And and that's how it started. Glenn recognised that this tumour had some characteristics in, in keeping with gastric type carcinoma of the cervix, which is only really starting to become um, known about. And, mm-hmm. and he had the Muxix stain, um, so we did that. And, and it sort of, it all uh, began with that case. And in the end, we, we wrote it up. Um, and I, I guess having seen that case and getting an eye for what the gastric type mucosa looked like meant that I was uh-huh. sort of primed to, to hope sure. to see it again. And then um, I was lucky enough in the next couple of years to see a couple of cases come through, one in a, uh, a benign uh, hysterectomy specimen or performed for benign reasons and one in uh, a cervical excision of what looked like a, um, a gastric type lesion but wasn't an invasive process. It looked like an in situ um, version mm-hmm. of the gastric type adenocarcinoma. And that was how um, I, and I obviously sent both of those cases off to Glenn as well. And um, we started to um, wonder about there being um uh, a precursor lesion to these gastric type malignancies. And obviously um, that, that work had already been started by Yoshiki Mikami's group in um, documenting atypical lobular endocervical glandular hyperplasia, which they proposed uh, might be a precursor. Um, and at about that time, uh, Marissa Nucci and Brooke Howitt published a paper talking about intestinal type adenocarcinoma in situ of the cervix and they noted that there was a small subset of cases that were p16 negative and arose Mm -hmm. in older women and um, Mm -hmm. posed the question of whether there might be another pathway of of, Mm -hmm. um, neoplasia formation in the cervix and then at that time around 2016 i um, took sabbatical leave from box hill and i went over and spent some time in Northern Ireland in Glenn's lab. And he um, had been talking to Marissa and Brooke about these examples of um, possible gastric type adenocarcinoma in situ, HPV independent. And so we pulled all of these cases together and I um, looked at them all whilst I was over there in Northern Ireland and that's how we we came to write, write them up. Um, as a case series of what we proposed was a, an HPV-independent 
uh, subtype of uh, adenocarcinoma in situ of the cervix, which we call gastric type. And um, yeah. we proposed that this was was a precursor lesion and was probably part of a spectrum with atypical lobular endocervical gland. Yeah, that's great that it all started with a handoff case. Isn't that fortuitous <laughs> yeah. how that happens? And you never know that it's going to happen. You just go into work that day. That's, that's right. a great story. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so then I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the project they're doing on grading endocervical carcinoma. They're having a special issue of the International Society of GYN Pathology Journal, um, yeah. which is uh, it's a result of the collaboration which involved for folks from ISGIP from all around the world. So I know you probably can't talk exactly about what you found because I think it's going to be a big reveal, big dramatic reveal at USGAP, <laughs> but um, <laughs> I'm picturing lights and you know fireworks or something on Zoom. I'm joking. Um, but how did you, uh, can you just talk about this project? I know it was a big undertaking. I know Dr. Uh, Singh, Navina Singh has been instrumental. Um, I, I did give data to it, but I don't know anything beyond that. So how did you become involved and as much as you're able to talk about what you all are, like yeah. how you're processing your findings. Yeah. So look, I, I'm like you, I wasn't actually directly involved in the inner workings mm-hmm. of the project. Um, we looked at some cases and we provided data to Navina as mm-hmm. well um, at the Royal Women's. Um, and I know that there's uh, a series of papers that are being put together for this special issue, um, mm-hmm. which is going to come out, is it next month or the month after? Um, in the International Journal of Gynecology. I can never keep track of, I know it's every other month. Yeah, starts, yeah. Yeah, so. Yeah, it might be February or maybe it's yeah. March. Anyway, um, yeah. it, and, and look, I think um, things had been uh, progressing nicely with that project and at some mm-hmm. point Glenn McCluggage recognised that uh, something that was missing um, in, in the, the collection of papers was uh, an examination of whether or not we should be grading endocervical adenocarcinomas and um and he invited me to to look at the literature and put something together um Mm. with regard to how we should be grading these tumors and the the pitch was you know just a very small um quick paper that um, looks at the literature and see and determine whether or not we can come up with any um, recommendations because this is a an area which uh, is controversial, unresolved. Um, there's uh, divergent opinions as to whether or not grading has any independent prognostic value and there's literature for and against. Um, yes. So I basically just pulled together everything that was out there, looked at it and found that there were a handful, not many, um, a handful of papers that showed that Modelling a grading system on the FIGO system for grading endometrioid adenocarcinomas using a combination of gland architecture and cytology um, had independent prognostic value. There were only um, three papers, two of which um, used that system religiously and one which added in some additional criteria uh, that showed that that was of independent prognostic value. Interestingly, they, they shifted the parameters a little bit in that they um, graded grade one as 10% or less um, solid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the numbers, mm-hmm. the, the cut points are slightly different. Um, but based on the so fact what that... What would systems be if they weren't just different yeah, enough for me to, to mess it up? Yeah, just a tiny little bit. Yeah. I have to look it up every <laughs> single time, but that's okay. That's okay. So yeah. look, in the absence of, of anything else, um, 
we we suggest um, in this paper that we grade HPV associated adenocarcinomas with some exceptions um, using a system modelled on the FIGO system for grading endometrial adenocarcinoma with the cut points set at 10%, 10 to 50 and then greater than 50% solid. Um, and, and that's based on only a very small amount of data, but, you know, there are some studies there that, that support that. Um, we, we suggest that uh, HPV-associated cancers with uh, a micropapillary component or invasive stratified mucinous carcinoma uh, or in signet ring cell component, all of which tend to behave more aggressively, we suggest that they ought not be graded and, and they stand alone as, as likely to have sure. a uh, higher grade uh, potential yeah. um like and serious, all, just go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly yeah. and and also the, the hpv independent tumors particularly gastric uh should mm-hmm. not be graded so that's that's the mm-hmm. essence of what the outcome of that um that project was um and yeah so i, I guess i was a late addition um to the effort to put together um this journal um so i don't i don't really have a lot of insight into the process that the group um, have been working on as a whole. I love, uh, I love than, those issues that they do, though, where they yeah. do they take on a topic and just go for every aspect of it. So I'll look forward to reading your article. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I, I, It's very interesting, isn't it, how um, if you meet different GYM pathologists, people are very wedded to certain ideas. And I've met people who always grade endocervical mm-hmm. adenocarcinoma, and then I've met people who don't. So... Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It would be nice if we all had a system we could follow, but that's perhaps ambitious for um, academic medicine. And look, I Um, I guess the other thing to say um, is with the emergence of the silver pattern-based classification system. Yes. And Mm -hmm. now also um, the way we classify tumors as HPV-associated or HPV-independent, it may Mm -hmm. well be that we don't need to grade them in future, um, that grading becomes redundant because the silver pattern-based classification trumps grading in terms right. of its prognostic meaning. I guess it probably will boil down to whether the clinicians still want to see a grade on the report or not and whether they're yeah, comfortable I, I think, right. without it. Yeah. And then I think that's the thing. If they're used to seeing it for other tumour types and then it's just not there, mm. um, is your phone just going to ring anyway if you yeah. don't put it on there? And yeah, exactly. Yeah, great is it? Um, I guess I, when I think about it, I tend to call things well differentiated, but yeah, I don't know if that doesn't have significance. But <laughs> yeah. I haven't thought. I mean, so does the does the nuclear grade? Can the nuclear grade upgrade the yes. grade like in FIGO? Okay. Yes, and that's, that's not based on any evidence. We um, we thought it seemed uh, a logical thing to do that if there's more than fifty percent of the tumor showing high nuclear grade morphology, that you, you right. can upgrade it. Um, right. Yeah, I, I think the the most robust aspect of it is is the architectural grade. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I feel about FIGO too. But yeah. Um, yeah. So let's see. Uh, we talked about that. We talked about that. Okay. So you did the podcast for ISJEP, and you were talking about a project you recently did about atypical endosalpingiosis. Yeah. Um, and as an aside, I find this concept very hard to understand and <laughs> nebulous. I would say. Yeah. Um, totally. As you described with terminology that seems to mean very different things. As you discussed in the podcast, it means different things to different pathologists. It means different things to clinicians. I'm pretty convinced that a lot of clinicians have no idea what we're talking about when we talk about atypical um, endosalpingiosis. Um, Not to mention um, 
that, uh, you know, you always see it in context of serous neoplasia of the ovary that's not high grade. And as you talked about in the podcast, sometimes people are actually even almost talking about borderline tumors or something. So for, for those who have not heard your podcast, can you talk about how you came to be involved in that project and what you found? Yeah, look, it's the same story. I had a challenging case and I really didn't know what to, to, to label this um, this process. So it was a young patient who had uh, multiple miliary peritoneal nodules um, mm-hmm. but no dominant mass lesion and histologically the morphology sat somewhere on the spectrum between ordinary benign endosalpingiosis and serous borderline tumour. It wasn't enough. Um, it was more a, a qualitative thing than a quantitative thing because there was a lot of disease. Um, it, it, but morphologically, it, it just wasn't enough in, for us to confidently call this primary peritoneal serous borderline tumour. Um, so I, I guess the essence of it is that it's it's in the grey zone. It's, it's, it's somehow falling short, but it's more than endosalpingiosis. And, and this um, is another case that went on a journey first to Jim Scurry in New South Wales and then he um, he phoned a friend and asked Glenn what Glenn would call it. Um, and and that then, I guess, uh, posed the question, uh, is, is, there, is there a midway, is there an entity um, that we can define that sits halfway uh, along this spectrum? Can we reproducibly make this diagnosis? Does it have prognostic meaning and I, I guess mm. the um the driver there was to try and spare these patients who are often young from um right. from strenuous surgery and and the the context of in the context of my case I had a clinician saying well if you're calling this a, a borderline tumor I'm going to do a peritoneal stripping procedure because this is a Ooh. very widespread disease sure yeah and 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 that was that was where it came from. That was the I guess the spark that that um, set us off. And so we we looked. Uh, it was primarily Glenn and Jim looking in their consultation files because they're both obviously very busy um, uh, pathologists, senior pathologists, lots of expertise and see lots of uh, consultation material and, and 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 good at filing cases and being able to yeah, find them later. Absolutely. A necessary life skill. For yes, everyone listening. In, yeah. Indeed, yeah. yes. And and so we <laughs> managed to pull together 10 hard-to-classify cases that sat somewhere in this grey zone and then set about re-examining them, um, documenting a range of morphologic parameters to see whether we could um, reliably, reproducibly delineate some difference between these and fully-fledged serous borderline neoplasia or just simple endosalpingiosis. And I guess the... The bottom line, um, the conclusion we reached is that, no, we can't. <laughs> it's a spectrum. Yeah. And um, much as we'd like to be able to draw firm um, lines to delineate uh, the, the various uh, stages of progression, we, we couldn't do that. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it was quite grey and murky. Um, I guess what what we could conclude based on our series of 10 and looking at their follow-up is that they've all had a benign course so it's unlikely that that lesions that fall short um, are going to behave in an aggressive fashion but then on the flip side our follow-up was an average of about two years which isn't that 
long to to be completely yeah, for some of those low grade serous diseases. I don't know what to call them lesions. Yeah, um, you can get pretty late. Exactly. You know, just sort of yeah, uh, smoldering disease almost. So, what what happened to your patient? Do you know? Um, she was lost to follow up, unfortunately. Mm. Um, the follow up, yeah, I know. The follow up I had at the time of writing was was negative. Was you know, uh, no right, no recurrence of disease. Um, but subsequent to that, uh, I haven't been able to obtain any further information. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So often the the context that I see this in uh, a lot of times is it sounds like your patient was different, but you know, a dominant ovarian mass and then something like this outside of the ovary. Yeah. And then you're trying to decide was, or maybe on a lymph node, is this, uh, you know, is this the tumor? Is this something that has nothing to do with the yeah. tumor? And, yeah. uh, and, and I find a lot of this low grade serous and sort of serous borderline terminology and diagnostics to be one of the areas in GYN pathology where people have very strongly held opinions. You know what I mean? Yep. Yeah. Yep. So it gets interesting pretty quickly. Yes, indeed. Um, but I also think it's a very interesting disease process. So, yeah. Um, so you have subspecialty training in cytopathology, as you've described, and are involved in the Australian Cervical Cancer Typing Study, which is called ACCTS. So as a bit of a background, and I'm reading this obviously not for you, but for folks listening who probably mostly do not live in Australia, if I believe my subscribership data, this is a quote, a national HPV vaccination program for the prevention of HPV infection and associated disease using the quadrivalent HPV vaccine has been funded and implemented in Australia since 2007, initially for girls only and extended to boys in 2013 with uptake rates among the highest observed worldwide. Additionally, in Australia, and uh, quote, in December 2017, the National Cervical Screening Program shifted from cytology-based screening to primary HPV-based screening, close quote. The basic premise of this model is to use HPV screening as the initial contact point with reflex testing with cytology for patients with high-risk subtypes. So I'm very interested to talk about this. I was not able to make it to USCAP last year because I'm a nervous person and I didn't want to get COVID. <laughs> but um, I looked at the, uh, <laughs> I, I looked, I was convinced I was going to get quarantined in a hotel. So there was a presentation from someone from Australia and I read the PowerPoint, but I obviously wasn't at the talk, but I have so many questions. So yeah, that um, have been Saville, who's the executive director here yes. at ACS. She did speak at USCAP last oh, year. Oh, lovely. It yeah. was, yeah, it looked lovely. Yeah. Yeah. It was a great so, talk. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you, you became interested in cytopathology. We talked about that and it's not so common for people to do that kind of subspecialty training. So I assume you're in high demand in this area. So yeah, um, although less so now with the renewal to our screening program, which has shifted everything to uh HPV, HPV. um, Uh okay. With reflex cytology only performed when there's high risk HPV protected. So the number of of smears we need to, I shouldn't call them smears because they're liquid based cytology now. Um, the number of, yeah, yeah, or, um, CSTs, cervical screening tests, the number of CSTs that we need to examine now has dramatically dropped. Gone down. So there's been Mm -hmm. this massive, um, impact on our cytology workforce, primarily the screening workforce, um, because the bulk of everything, I mean, the, the bulk of our cytology smears prior to the renewal were reported and signed out by cytologists rather than pathologists. 
So there was right. a, a huge redeployment of, of, of those um, individuals into other other roles, other other sure. careers. Yeah. Um, Although I would imagine you you become almost more in demand paradoxically because it might be harder to train in what you're doing now because yeah, there to, aren't as many specimens to train on, right? Yeah, <laughs> so. you're, you're probably right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there there I mean, are certainly fewer pathologists who are doing purely right. um, cytology. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and a lot in the States, a lot of the cytotechnologists who do the screening have become trained on doing in on-site procedures. Um, yeah. So they do bronchoscopies and endoscopies yeah. and things like that. So, um, you know, it's, it's all cells. So they, I think a lot of them like doing that. So yeah. it is interesting though, because your career would necessarily have spanned this transition from primary uh, pap smear based screening and then to HPV based screening. Yes. So what has it been like to not only witness that, but live through it and work through it? And, um, what, what is that like now? Yeah. So going into it, there was a lot of fear and uncertainty. Um, and mm-hmm. I think there was a lot of focus on jobs that were going to be lost primarily for the psychology um, population, but psychologists. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so that was a difficult period. I think it was well managed. Uh, and most of the psychologists I know have found rewarding alternative career paths. And of course, some of them have stayed um, mm-hmm. in the role as psychologists. And here at, at BCS, we have, we still have a, a good number of psychologists doing the screening. Um, so I guess from the kind of professional standpoint there was that fear and uncertainty about what's going to happen to our jobs and then for the community and and the clinicians out there there was also a lot of uncertainty about um, the safety um, of this new test shifting from the tried and true two-yearly cytology smear which had done really good work in Australia it had cut our rate of squam cell carcinoma in half Um, but it had reached the limit of its effectiveness so the the rate of scc although it had steadily declined had actually plateaued um at about Mm. around the year 2000 and and was not coming down any further um and we'd had no impact on rates of adenocarcinoma with our cytology Mm -hmm. screening program um but it, it was what we knew so i think people in the community um everyone's always skeptical about a new a new piece of technology um and so I guess the answer to that is education. And I think the education um, at the transition was hand, handled well. Um, I certainly um, attended a number of conferences where it was discussed. There, there was a lot of dissemination of all the facts um, and underpinnings um, behind the, the implementation of HPV, primary HPV testing. Um, there was uh, broadcast media um promotion, um, things in the newspapers. Uh, I believe that there was training um, amongst junior doctors and medical students. And I guess most usefully, um, there's a a huge online resource. There's a a wiki platform that's, I think it's administered by the Australian Cancer Cancer Council, which has everything you need to know. It's all there. So you can get onto this website and, and just look up any question that you have that it can be addressed um yeah and 
working at a place like BCS where it, it's a large part of what we do, we also have um, liaison physicians on staff who are dedicated um, doctors, medical doctors who work as an intermediary between the laboratory and the clinicians out there um, educating and and responding to queries and concerns that are raised. So there was a, a lot of effort put into trying to educate the public, educate clinicians and to redeploy all of the professionals in the laboratory sector uh, who are going to be impacted by this change. Um, It it wasn't a completely smooth transition. Um, There was a change.org petition that uh, was created by a woman, I think it was around 2017, that ended up getting 70,000 signatures and and lots and lots of comments. So there, there there was... some pushback by the, the, the public. And um, one of the things that we've noted in the, the transition to the renewed screening program is that the rates of referral for, for colposcopy are much higher than what was anticipated and modelled. And that, we think, reflects the fact that there probably is on some level some lack of confidence uh, at the level of clinicians as well. Um, in in the so you think that clinicians are maybe not following the guidelines and correct yes sort of ordering to... colposcopy when they yes. have a feeling or something okay. exactly exactly um, and look there were there were a number of specific concerns raised because we we not only changed the screening interval from two years to five years but we also uh, with the renewal started screening at an older age so rather than starting screening at around 18 or 19 years of age, it it commences at 25 years of age. So there were concerns raised about that increased Mm -hmm. interval of screening and and the older age of of commencement of screening. And all all of those things needed to be teased out and addressed um, and and clinicians and public alike reassured. Um, There was also concern raised about missing HPV-independent carcinomas um mm-hmm. and and so that that was another um or is another question that we we continue to address um and in in transitioning now so we, we the renewal was rolled out on the 1st of December um 2017 so we've passed the two year mark um so a few problems have emerged um so the first one I mentioned um, was the increased rate of referral to colposcopy. So our colposcopy services haven't been able to keep up with the demand. Um, and huh. So your cervical biopsy numbers, have they gone up? Yes, they've gone up. Um, and there, there's a backlog of patients, particularly in the public system, who are still um, waiting for colposcopy. So that, that was mm-hmm. something that was um, unexpected. Um, another mm-hmm. problem that we've run into is um, women who are often postmenopausal are showing up uh, positivity for high-risk HPV, often 16 and 18, um, but have no abnormality detected at colposcopy or on biopsy. And now that we're two years in, we're seeing these patients come back at their second screen um, a year later and they're still positive, so they have persistent high-risk HPV but nothing defined colposcopically or on biopsy and the thinking is that this is probably uh, re-emergence of of latent HPV infection um, due to advancing age presumably and uh, reduced yeah it's interesting I've I've 
I think a lot about HPV in this age group and especially patients over age 65, there isn't a lot of literature and there's a lot of hand waving. Yes. Um, but there is a second peak of, of incidents of, um, of, of detectable abnormalities, not just HPV infection in that age group. And it, it is something about the immunity and, and, and the infection rate, but also we know patients in that age group are less, less likely to clear it. And then I also find the distinction between atrophy and high grade, sometimes terrifyingly (laughs) difficult. So it's uh, especially on PAP, although it's, it sounds like you, so is the model that they do the HPV test and go to colposcopy. They don't do the HPV test and do a pap smear or CTS as you call it. Yeah. So the the way it works is the HPV test is the um, the primary screen and we then partially genotype. So if you're HPV 16 or 18 positive, you Mm -hmm. are um, triaged directly to colposcopy. If you're non 16, 18, then, um, depending on what the uh, cytology findings are, you either go straight to colposcopy or you go back into the screening Got pool it. for another year. Okay. Um, so I didn't say this, but every patient who has high-risk HPV detected then has reflex LBC performed. So every high-risk HPV uh, finding will be accompanied by a liquid-based cytology specimen being prepared. Okay. And And... Irrespective of what that shows, if you're 16 and 18 positive, you will go to colposcopy. You're getting colposcopy. Correct. Okay. But everybody who's HPV positive basically is getting a liquid base. They're all getting an LBC. And for the ones that are non-16, 18, uh, you only go to colposcopy if it's possible high grade or or worse. Sure. Yeah. And so if it's read as low grade or less, uh, non-16, 18, you are told to go away for 12 months and then come back for a repeat test. Got it. Yeah, and then after you've had two uh, cycles of that, uh, so at the 24-month point, if you um, are HPV 16, 18 positive again, then you go to colposcopy. Mm -hmm. Non-16, 18, sorry. Oh, so if you have two non-16, 18, then you go to colposcopy regardless of your your test. Okay. Yeah. That's I think that's I said the wrong thing, intuitive. 24 month point. I think it's the 12 month point. So you had your okay. initial screen and then you come back at 12 months. If you're positive um, again for non 16, 18, then you're referred to colposcopy. Right. If but, you have two positive tests, it's yeah, two positive, positive, two positive strikes and 12. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, and this is the reason for my confusion. What's, what is currently changing, and I think it's being implemented in February, is we are now, because of the um, a couple of things because of the, the blowout in colposcopy referrals and because we now have some data on what the risk of SIN2 plus is in that cohort of women, right. we're now extending uh-huh. it for another 12 months and giving them another round. So uh, another 12 months uh-huh. and then doing a third test. And if you're still for positive, non-16, 18. for non-16, 18, mm-hmm. that's right. right. So there's just been some data published that showed in this cohort of patients the risk of SIN2 plus is only around 8% and the risk of cancer is is incredibly low, less than 1%. Um, so partly based on that data and partly because of the overload on our colposcopy services, those women are now being given another 12 months to clear that infection um, prior to being referred to colposcopy. Okay. Any colposcopists listening who want to go live in Australia? Yeah. <laughs> You are needed. <laughs> so you were going to say something? I was going to say, but um, 
in, in spite of, um, you know, all of these changes, uh, as a reporting pathologist, uh, I actually think it's been mm-hmm. a, a significant improvement. Um, I love looking at LBCs um, compared to mm-hmm. conventional smears. Uh, I, I don't know if you've looked at both. Um, uh, no, conventional smears were already dinos- like they were already on their way out. When I was a trainee, we would get one every once in a while, and it was the kind of thing where everyone would rush to look at it because <laughs> they were like, "Oh my gosh, you would never see these anymore." But um, it was, I think, it was a thing that was happening maybe more in rural America because of cost, right? It was yeah. just much cheaper to make those. Yeah, um, but yeah. yeah I, I, had, I also pretty much came up on looking at liquid-based cytology, and I think pap smears are one of my favorite specimens as well. So yeah, and they're fun to look at. Um, having mm-hmm. done many years of looking at conventionals, um, they're mm-hmm. they're efficient, um, clean, um, you know, colorful. They're, they're a lot more fun to look at than than an air-dried, really large slide foot packed full of um, material uh, yeah. in the conventional Yes. And also knowing the HPV status of the patient, I think, makes it easier um, easier and harder um, to report, easier to call things HPV and LCIL, um, but harder to resist the desire to call something possible high-grade or to worry about glandular groups when you know there's an HPV 18 positive or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard not to let that HPV result bump you if you're yeah. on the fence. Yeah, totally. And I try not to. I try to be honest because you're, I mean, technically you're supposed to use them independently, but man, that's hard when yeah. you're on the fence and you look and you're, you're, oh, wow, this patient has HPV 16 and other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, not in <laughs> Maybe it is ASCH or whatever we call it, you know, yeah. which is for high grade. Yeah. Um, so the, that's interesting, a change.org petition. I'm, I have so many interesting things to look up for this episode. Not only, you know, the TV programs you watched when you were younger, but also you now these, <laughs> um, these change.org positions. That yeah. I, I, it's, it's so interesting too, because um, so does Australia, and this is another, like you all have, the power to say as a country, we're going to do this, it's going to happen. And then it happens. That kind of thing almost couldn't happen in the United States. We have so many factions and, Mm -hmm. you know, each state sort of ends up doing their own thing. Um, And you said there was a lot of publicity and education for clinicians. Uh, What was it? like a publicist, like was there, were there commercials on TV? Like how did people even know this was happening? Yeah, that's a good question. I can't remember if there were actually TV commercials, but uh-huh. I'm pretty sure that there were, you know, the, the classic kind of glossy poster in the, the doctor's office, okay. that sort of stuff. Uh, okay. Um, so maybe more of education at the level of a patient going to their doctor and saying, yeah. we're not yeah. going to do it the way we always did it. Okay. Yeah. And, and the other thing patients that we- are collecting, Sorry, yeah, gone. They're collecting them at home themselves, right? Yes. Now that that's another um, another initiative is the self collected um, tests with a, a flocked cotton, cotton swab. Women who are yeah. under screened or never screened, and and they're the population that we worry about um, because they're the ones who develop right. cancers. They can now self collect uh, an an HPV test. It's not it's not amenable to liquid based cytology because it's just a cotton swab. Um, right. But uh-huh. the, the sensitivity and specificity of, of the test is uh, is good enough that this can stand alone as a testing screening procedure for these these women um, who, for various yeah. reasons, um, refuse a speculum examination. 
um, but but will carry out um, a self self test um, for HPV and to at and least so get that's, them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, in the and, system, yeah. And the finding is that once they've done that, if they are high risk HPV positive, uh, they're more receptive then with some education to then progressing to um, a proper um, speculum examination and colposcopy if needed and so on. Um, so I think the next step is to then get a proper LBC sample with a speculum exam and right. to then triage them um, based on, on the findings. Um, sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, and I think we we must, as a society here in Australia, and I think this is reflected in COVID as well, we're a lot more um, trusting of, of our medical authorities and uh, willing to uh, to do what we're told. And I think that's reflected also in the rates of uptake of the HPV vaccine. We've got really high right. coverage, um, high 70s, maybe 80% range for young uh, people. I mean, it's now it's part of our standard um uh, vaccination protocol for, for children um, and it's given in high school in year seven um, and and the uptake has been really good there hasn't I mean there, there's always going to be the the vocal minority that, that refuse it but um, you know it, yeah it's it's been well well received here and um, and is now starting to have an impact on the incidence of precancers in in younger patients yeah. are you trying to get me to move to Australia yeah <laughs> um, Sounds sounds alluring. I will say I live in Rhode Island, which is a very tiny state up in the New England area of the United States, but yeah. I'm not from here. But we have one of the highest uptake rates for HPV vaccine in the country. I think the last time I looked, we were the highest, and I think our rate was right around 70 or 80. So, yeah, that's good. Um, but we're only a million people. We're a very, very, yeah. we're the smallest state in the union. Yeah. Um, and it is interesting. You talked about COVID and trust in your medical system. And I think that is a prerequisite for doing what you all are doing. Cause you did sort of take a screening method, which has been saving lives for generations mm-hmm. and flipped it on its head, just flipped it upside down. And um, I think you can't do that if people don't trust the folks who are telling them it'll be okay. We're, yeah. We've got you, we're going to do this the right way. Yeah. So yeah. Um, yeah. And I look forward to seeing those papers and, especially that question about the postmenopausal patients. That'll be very Yeah, I, I think there's going to be, because the question is what do you do with these patients? And the clinicians are ringing us yeah. and saying, do I do a diagnostic leap on this, this patient yeah. or do I send them And then them you away? end up with a bunch of negative leaps yeah. and yeah. how many of those do you have to do before you find the one patient who actually has high grade? Exactly. And, and, and that reflects the fact that this is all new and we just don't have that information right. yet. So right. we, we have yeah. to be prepared to sort of make it up as we go along to some extent. Right. Um, but yeah. I believe that there are going to be some guidelines put together um, imminently um, to deal with that particular scenario. What do we do with these postmenopausal uh-huh. women with persistent high-risk HPV but no lesion. And problematically, these women often have a type 3 transformation zone, so you can't actually get a, a visual on the TZ. That's the thing. So yeah, there's they always get that the, question, what's up the canal? What? Yeah, what 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 can't I see? Yeah. That's what's hiding up there? It's it's like the adeno question when you have a atypical glandular pap smear. You yes. know, it's, it's, did I sample it enough? Did I go far up enough? And that's one of the other problems with these postmenopausal patients with the decreased estrogen support, and then the cervical canal becomes almost as long as the endometrial cavity. Yes, <laughs> so you can't. 
you know, I mean, when you were grossing a uterus, you could, you notice that. So I can imagine on colposcopy, it's very difficult, especially with the component of stenosis. Mm. Um, wouldn't be a fun thing to try to sample. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, that, that was, yeah, that was very interesting to talk about that project with you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I was going to move on now to the, my fun questions if um, <laughs> we're finished talking about cytology for the moment. So um, you live in Melbourne, or I'm probably saying that incorrectly. Melbourne, Melbourne. Is how you would say it. Australia, yes. Melbourne. Yeah. <laughs> To a, to a United from the United States, it looks like Melbourne, which is completely wrong. I understand that, yeah. but it's the capital city of the state of Victoria. Um, my internet research has led me to believe that it is both the world's most livable city as well as the coffee capital of the world. So I really <laughs> would move there because I love coffee. Uh, so have you always lived in Melbourne? And what is your favorite thing to do there? Yep, I've always lived in Melbourne. Um, I'm boring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've almost always lived in the same. Oh, it suburb. sounds lovely. I don't know. I, I just, it sounds like people don't want to leave there, so I think you might just be smart. <laughs> yeah. yeah, look, it's a it's yeah. a beautiful city. It's it's pretty mm-hmm. much got everything. It's got a um, a beach culture. It's got a, a really good restaurant and cafe scene. It's very cultural in that there's lots of arts, um, you know, performing arts um, galleries. Um, you know, music, theatre, all of those are very uh, busy and lively. And it's also a mm-hmm. sport um, capital. You know, we have mm-hmm. massive um, sporting events here. We have the Grand Prix. We have um, Australian Rules Football um, is sort of born out of, of Melbourne. Um, and we have... Australian the, Rules Football was born there? Yeah. Well, look, I, I'm actually not an Aussie Rules aficionado, but I believe that Melbourne is the, the home of Aussie Rules Football and we have the grand nice. final here every year at the MCG, Melbourne Cricket. So do you know how I learned about this? This is a funny story that you'll appreciate because you and Glenn McCluggage are are uh, friendly and you publish with him. Mm. I was Googling him on YouTube to see if anyone else had interviewed oh, him when I interviewed him for my show. Yes. You do. You do. And he told me, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, this is definitely not him because <laughs> I can't understand a lot of the things this man is saying because he has a very thick Australian accent. Yeah. And uh, when I asked him about it, he said, Glenn, I said, do you know, do you know about this? He said, yeah, I do. Because my last name is so uncommon. He probably comes from the same place as me in Northern yeah, Ireland. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I, I was watching something on the TV and heard the name, I think it's Hugh mm-hmm. McCluggage and thought, oh my God, Hugh, yes. I've never heard that name spoken outside of probably distant pathology. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Outside of the world of pathology in Australia. And there you go. Yeah. <laughs> There um, you go. Yeah, and yeah. my favourite thing to do in Melbourne is um, to go running along the beach and then to have coffee oh. afterwards. <laughs> in the sand? Do you run in the sand? I oh, God, difficult. no. That's too hard. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I I don't like that for my calves. I tend to be on something a little harder. I also like to jog, but I don't – I don't. it's probably not as hot here as it is there. So um, I'm picturing you running in the full sun in Australia. I just – is it very hot there in the summer? Is it? Yeah. Um, is it the, summer right now for you? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, it's yeah. unseasonably a bit cool at the moment. I think today is 27 okay. degrees or 26 degrees. Um, okay. Our summers do get uh, really uncomfortably hot and I don't like the heat. Um, we get yeah. runs of um, 40 degree days, sometimes over 40 Ooh. degrees. Yeah. Um, so we get these hot spells that will last five or six or seven days and yeah. everything gets hot and you just can't get cool. Um, mm-hmm. And they usually come late January, February. 
and that's traditionally okay. when our fire season um, is at its worst and bushfires are coming up. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although last year broke all the rules and we had fires before Christmas. Um, oh, and then ew. on the flip side in winter we get down, I don't think we're anywhere near as cold as you are in the northern states in the US. We're never really below freezing um, mm-hmm. but, but temperatures are down around, you know, I guess zero to about 15 degrees during winter. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a, yeah, that does sound nice. So yeah. the only other thing I wanted to ask is uh, 20, you know, this, I wrote this outline in 2020, but it's 2021 now. And this has been quite a you know, calendar year since COVID started. Um, and it's changed work and life for everybody. So um, you can just talk briefly if you'd like about like what this past 12 months has been like for you. And um, what are you doing when you're not working? How do you relax? Besides yeah. running? <laughs> um, it's been a tough year. Uh, I think mm-hmm. one of the hardest things has been watching the vast majority of the community uh, take a step back and either work mm-hmm. from home or not work at all, which isn't a good thing mm-hmm. at all. But uh, w- watching a lot of people have to um, scale down and yet mm-hmm. still having to leave the house every day and go to work, I, I mm-hmm. felt I found that hard because I, I guess my, like you were saying earlier, you're, you're cautious and you're a bit scared um, being out there in the community and having to go to work every day. Uh, it, I, I, at some point I think I wished I could just stay home as well. <laughs> I'd, yeah, I totally agree with you. <laughs> and, so yeah. it was a, and I, yeah. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it was a bit of a struggle. There were times where I thought, oh, it would be great to be in a profession where I could just magically work from home. <laughs> you know, right. And, right. and to some extent, actually, I was lucky enough to be able to do that. VCS um, responded to the pandemic by setting us all up to work from home. And um, that's nice. Yeah, it was amazing. It was extraordinary. So we, we had um, computers and microscopes um, set up at home and we all dialed into the, uh, the VPN and we did our reporting remotely. It's, it's more doable with cytology work than complex histology. Um, so for the Royal Women's yes. I, I still went in each day. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I guess there was that sort of um, that mindset of having to continue to carry on life as normal despite complete chaos around you. So that, that, that I found that challenging. Um, and then at, yeah. at work, just the little things, you know, having to wear a mask every time you step foot out of your office the screening procedures every time you front up to work, you have to have temperature checks, fill out a, a long questionnaire, um, continual mm-hmm. hand sanitising, all of that, social distancing, having to drive instead of getting public transport, which I, is how I usually commute, sure. all those little mm-hmm. things. And then and the interactions with your colleagues at work have, have profoundly shifted. So we can't do yeah. multi-header sessions anymore. We can't do teaching around mm-hmm multi-header microscope we can't do multidisciplinary meetings in person everything's done online conferences online um you know pre-recording a talk for a conference um i guess you know on every level there's been some shift um to minimize our exposure to to Mm -hmm. others that's all been hard um but i think we've all we've all kind of embraced it and adapted and and made the transition pretty well it yeah it will be nice to go back to something resembling normal. I miss 
you know, grabbing a teaching set and just sitting down with a resident over the scope and yeah. it's not the same, yeah. you know, it's just not the same. Yeah. I agree. Um, and the, and those moments where you show a case to your colleague and then sit and talk about it for a few minutes, I think every time I see someone, I just try to minimize my face-to-face contact yeah. um, just until, although I'm partially vaccinated now. So uh, pretty wow. soon, maybe I can relax just a just a little bit, but we'll see. Yeah. Um, here's to a better 2021. Oh, absolutely. I um, yeah. completely agree. Um, was the vaccine, ha- has there been a lingering after effect? Have you found that you don't feel 100%? I got the Moderna vaccine and I tend not to have very strong reactions to vaccines with the flu and things. I mean, my arm will hurt a little, but I just go about my day. I tend to stiff upper lip, a lot of that kind of stuff anyway. Yeah. Um, but this one hurt. It was painful. And then ironically, I don't, um, my friend warned me that this would happen. I slept like a baby. Yeah. <laughs> like 10 or 11 hours of sleep. Yeah. I never sleep that much anymore. Yeah. And then um, I felt a little icky and then slept really well again. And then I was fine. But I had friends who got little low grade fevers and things. And I've heard the second dose is going to be a little bit worse. So we'll okay. see. But uh, like I said, I told them, it's doing but, Yeah. Are you all getting vaccines soon or how's that working for healthcare uh, workers in Australia? We, because we don't have the same um, amount of disease, uh-huh. in fact, we had more or less oh. gotten it under control. Um, we had a big yeah. second wave here in Victoria, uh, but uh-huh. never anywhere near the numbers that, that you guys are experiencing. Yeah. So the, the vaccine um, isn't, isn't being implemented as an emergency measure here, so we're not fast-tracking it like the UK and oh, the US have. Wow. Um, the message has been that we're going to take our time and and let the FDA do all the appropriate checks and balances and things before we roll it out. But that said, we've now we're not in a third wave by any by any stretch, but we are starting to have small clusters of cases in New South Wales and in Victoria. And we have uh-huh. just had a case of this highly infectious strain reported in uh, Queensland. So there are now some some calls to try and bring it forward. I think it was slated for March uh, as the rollout mm-hmm. date, but I think there's some talk now about February just for f- out of a uh, concern that we we you know we need to, to get it happening sooner. Get um, started on it before it turns winter again on you all yeah, for sure. Yeah. I guess that might there's that. Be a great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, look it's happening yeah. um but not uh, as an emergency um, procedure okay. and um, not being fast-tracked as, as it is in North America and the UK. Happy to be your guinea pig. Yeah. Happy to do it for you. Do <laughs> <laughs> you know how it goes? Well, I really appreciate you doing this for me today. I know you need to get back to work, but this has been delightful. It was Thank so you. nice to meet you and so nice to talk to you. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. It's been a yeah. pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Have a good day. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Too.